This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Shadow of the Vulture by Robert E. Howard. It's read by Connor Kay. It runs one hour, 38 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Shadow of the Vulture by Robert E. Howard. First published in The Magic Carpet Magazine, January 1934. Other dogs dressed and gorged, I, protector of the faithful, then let them crawl into the presence. So they brought the envoys, pallid from months of imprisonment, before the canopied throne of Suleiman the Magnificent, Sultan of Turkey, and the mightiest monarch in an age of mighty monarchs. Under the great purple dome of the royal chamber gleamed the throne before which the world trembled, gold panelled, pearl inlaid. An emperor's wealth in gems was sewn into the silken canopy from which depended a shimmering string of pearls ending in a frieze of emeralds which hung like a halo of glory above Suleiman's head. Yet the splendor of the throne was paled by the glitter of the figure upon it, bedecked in jewels, the egret feather rising above the diamonded white turban. Above the throne stood his nine viziers, in attitudes of humility, and warriors of the imperial bodyguard ranged the dais. Solax in armour, black and white and scarlet plumes nodding above the gilded helmets. The envoys from Austria were poorly impressed, the more so as they had had nine weary months for reflection in the grim castle of the seven towers that overlooked the Sea of Marmora. The head of the embassy choked down his collar and cloaked his resentment in a semblance of submission. A strange cloak on the shoulders of Habodansky, General of Ferdinand, Archduke of Austria. His rugged head bristled incongruously from the flaming silk robes presented him by the contemptuous sultan as he was brought before the throne, his arms gripped fast by stalwart janissaries. Thus were foreign envoys presented to the sultans, ever since that red day by Kosovo, when Milos Kabilovic, knight of slaughtered Serbia, had slain the conqueror Murad with a hidden dagger. The Grand Turk regarded Habodansky with scant favour. Suleiman was a tall, slender man with a thin, down-curving nose and a thin, straight mouth, the resolution of which his drooping mustachios did not soften. His narrow, outward-curving chin was shaven. The only suggestion of weakness was the slender, remarkably long neck. But that suggestion was belied by the hard lines of the slender figure, the glitter of the dark eyes. There was more than a suggestion of the Tartar about him. Rightly so, since he was no more the son of Selim the Grim than of Hafsha Kutan, Princess of Crimea. Born to the purple, heir to the mightiest military power in the world, he was crested with authority and cloaked in pride that recognized no peer beneath the gods. Under his eagle gaze, old Habodansky bent his head to hide the sullen rage in his eyes. Nine months before, the general had come to Stanbul, 
representing his master, the Archduke, with proposals for truce, and the disposition of the Iron Crown of Hungary, torn from the dead King Louis's head on the bloody field of the Mohatch, where the Grand Turk's armies opened the road to empire. There had been another emissary before him, Jerome Laschke, the Polish Count Palatine. Haberdanski, with the bluntness of his breed, had claimed the Hungarian crown for his master, rousing Suleiman's ire. Laschke had, like a suppliant, asked on his bended knees that crown for his countrymen at Mohacz. To Laschke had been given honour, gold and promises of patronage, for which he had paid with pledges abhorrent even to his avaricious soul, selling his allies' subjects into slavery and opening the road through the subject territory to the very heart of Christendom. All this was made known to Habedansky, frothing with fury in the prison to which the arrogant resentment of the sultan had assigned him. Now Saliman looked contemptuously at the staunch old general and dispensed with the usual formality of speaking through the mouthpiece of the Grand Vizier. A royal Turk would not deign to admit knowledge of any Frankish tongue, but Habedansky understood Turkey. The Sultan's remarks were brief and without preamble. Say to your master that I now make ready to visit him in his own lands, and that if he fails to meet me at Mohach or at Pest, I will meet him beneath the walls of Vienna. Habodanski bowed, not trusting himself to speak. At a scornful wave of the imperial hand, an officer of the court came forward and bestowed upon the general a small gilded bag containing 200 ducats. Each member of his retinue, waiting patiently at the other end of the chamber, under the spears of the Janissaries, was likewise so girdened. Habodansky mumbled thanks, his knotted hands clenched about the gift with unnecessary vigour. The sultan grinned thinly, well aware that the ambassador would have hurled the coins into his face had he dared. He half lifted his hand in token of dismissal, then paused, his eyes resting on the group of men who composed the general's suite, or rather, on one of these men. This man was the tallest in the room, strongly built, wearing his Turkish gift garments clumsily. At his gesture from the sultan, he was brought forward in the grasp of the soldiers. Suleiman stared at him narrowly. The Turkish vest and voluminous kalat could not conceal the lines of his massive strength. His tawny hair was close-cropped, his sweeping yellow moustaches drooped below a stubborn chin. His blue eyes seemed strangely clouded. It was as if the man slept on his feet with his eyes open. Do you speak Turkey? The sultan did the fellow the stupendous honour of addressing him directly. Through all the pomp of the Ottoman court, there remained in the sultan some of the simplicity of Tartar ancestors. Yes, your majesty, answered the Frank. Who are you? Men name me Gottfried von Kambach. Suleiman scowled, and unconsciously his fingers wandered to his shoulder, where, under his silken robes, he could feel the outlines of an old scar. I do not forget faces. Somewhere I have seen yours, under circumstances that etched it into the back of my mind, but I am unable to recall those circumstances. I was at Rhodes, offered the German. Many men were at Rhodes, snapped Suleiman. I, agreed von Kambach, tranquilly. De la Ile Adam was there. 
Suleiman stiffened, and his eyes glittered at the name of the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John, whose desperate defense of Rhodes had costed the Turk 60,000 men. He decided, however, that the Frank was not clever enough for the remark to carry any subtle thrust, and dismissed the embassy with a wave. The envoys were backed out of the presence, and the incident was closed. The Franks would be escorted out of Stamboul and to the nearest boundaries of the empire. The Turks' warning would be carried, post-haste, to the Archduke, and soon on the heels of that warning would come the armies of the sublime Porte. Suleiman's officers knew that the Grand Turk had more in mind than merely establishing his puppet Zapolya on the conquered Hungarian throne. Suleiman's ambitions embraced all Europe. That stubborn Frankistan, which had for centuries sporadically poured forth hordes chanting and pillaging into the east, whose illogical and wayward peoples had again and again seemed ripe for Muslim conquest, yet who had always emerged, if not victorious, at least unconquered. It was the evening of the morning on which the Austrian emissaries departed that Suleiman, brooding on his throne, raised his lean head and beckoned his grand vizier, Ibrahim, who approached with confidence. The grand vizier was always sure of his master's approbation. Was he not cup companion and boyhood comrade of the sultan? Ibrahim had but one rival in his master's favour, Kurim the Joyous, whom Europe knew as Roxolana, whom slavers had dragged from her father's house in Rogatino to be the sultan's harem favourite. I remember that infidel at last, said Suleiman. Do you recall the first charge of the knights at Mohach? Ibrahim winced slightly at the illusion. O protector of the pitiful, is it likely that I should forget an occasion on which the divine blood of my master was spilt by an unbeliever? Then you'd remember that thirty-two knights, the paladins of the Nazarenes, drove headlong into our array, each having pledged his life to cut down our person. By Allah, they rode like men riding to a wedding, their great horses and long lances overthrowing all who opposed them, and their plate armour turned the finest steel. Yet they fell as the firelocks spoke, until only three were left in the saddle. The knight, Marchali, and two companions. These paladins cut down my solax like ripe grain, and Marchali and one of his companions fell, almost at my feet. Yet one knight remained, though his visored helmet had been torn from his head, and blood started from every joint in his armor. He rode full at me, swinging his great two-handed sword, and I swear by the beard of the prophet, death was so nigh me that I felt the burning breath of Azariel on my neck. His sword flashed like lightning in the sky, and glancing from my casca, whereby I was half-stunned, so that blood gushed from my nose, rent the mail on my shoulders, and gave me this wound, which irks me yet when the rains come. The Janissaries who swarmed around me cut the hocks of his horse, which brought him to the earth as it went down, and the remnants of my solax bore me back out of the Malay. Then the Hungarian host came on, and I saw not what became of the knight, but today I saw him again. Ibrahim started with an exclamation of incredulity. Nay, I could not mistake those blue eyes. How is it I know not, but the knight that wounded me at Mohach was this German, Gottfried von Kambach. But defender of the faith, protested Ibrahim, the heads of those dog knights were heaped before thy royal pavilion. And I counted them, and said nothing at the time, lest men think I held thee in blame, answered Suleiman. There were but thirty-one. Most were so mutilated I could tell little of the features. 
but somehow the infidel escaped who gave me this blow. I love brave men, but our blood is not so common that an unbeliever may with impunity spill it on the ground for the dogs to lap up. See ye to it. Ibrahim salaamed deeply and withdrew. He made his way through the broad corridors to a blue-tiled chamber whose gold-arched windows looked out on broad galleries shaded by cypress and plane trees and cooled by the spray of silvery fountains. There, at his summons, came one Yoruk Khan, a Krim Tatar, a slant-eyed impassive figure in harness of lacquered leather and burnished bronze. Dog brother, said the vizier. Did thy cumis-clouded gaze mark the tall German lord who served the emir Havodansky, the lord whose hair is tawny as a lion's mane? I, Yunon, he who is called Gombuk, the same. Take a chambul of thy dog brothers and go after the Franks. Bring back this man and thou shalt be rewarded. The persons of envoys are sacred, but this matter is not official, he added cynically. To hear is to obey. With a salaam as profound as that accorded to the sultan himself, Yaruk Khan backed out of the presence of the second man of the empire. He returned some days later, dusty, travel-stained, and without his prey. On him, Ibrahim bent an eye full of menace, and the Tatar prostrated himself before the silken cushions on which the grand vizier sat, in the blue chamber with the gold-arched windows. Great Khan, let not thy anger consume thy slave. The fault was not mine, by the beard of the prophet. Squat on thy mangy haunches and bay out the tail, ordered Ibrahim considerately. Thus it was, my lord, began Yaruk Khan. I rode swiftly, and though the Franks and their escort had a long start and pushed on through the night without halting, I came up with them the next midday. But lo, Gombuk was not among them, and when I inquired after him, the paladin, Habodansky, replied with many great oaths, like to the roaring of a cannon. So I spoke with various of the escort who understood the speech of these infidels, and learned what had come to pass. Yet I would have my lord remember that I only repeat the words of the Spahis of the escort, who are men without honour, and lie like, like a Tatar, said Ibrahim. Yaruk Khan acknowledged the compliment with a wide, dog-like grin, and continued. This they told me. At dawn, Gombuk drew horse away from the rest, and the emir Habodansky demanded of him the reason. Then Gombuk laughed in the manner of the Franks. Ha ha ha! So! And Gombuk said, The devil of good your service has done me, so I cool my heels for nine months in a Turkish prison. Suleiman has given us safe conduct over the border, and I am not compelled to ride with you. You dog, said the emir. There is war in the wind, and the archduke has need of your sword. Devil eat the archduke, replied Gombuk. Zapolya is a dog because he stood aside of Mohach, and let us, his comrades, be cut to pieces, but Ferdinand is a dog too. When I am penniless, I sell him my sword. Now I have two hundred ducats, and these robes which I can sell to any Jew for a handful of silver, and may the devil bite me if I draw a sword for any man while I have a penny left. I'm for the nearest Christian tavern, and you and the Archduke may go to the devil. Then the emir cursed him with many great curses, and Gombuk rode away laughing, ha ha ha, and singing a song about a cockroach named Enough. Ibrahim's features were dark with rage. 
He plucked savagely at his beard, reflecting that in the allusion to Mohatch, von Kalmbach had practically clinched Suleiman's suspicion. That matter of 31 heads, when there should have been 32, was something no Turkish sultan would be likely to overlook. Officials had lost positions and their own heads over more trivial matters. The manner in which Suleiman had acted showed his almost incredible fondness and consideration for his grand vizier, but Ibrahim, vain though he was, was shrewd, and wished no slightest shadow to come between him and his sovereign. "'Could you not have tracked him down, dog?' he demanded. "'By Allah!' swore the uneasy Tatar. "'He must have ridden on the wind. He crossed the border hours ahead of me, and I followed him as far as I dared.' "'Enough of excuses!' interrupted Ibrahim. Send Mikhail Oglu to me. The Tatar departed, thankfully. Ibrahim was not tolerant of failure in any man. The Grand Vizier brooded on his silken cushions until the shadow of a pair of vulture wings fell across the marble-tiled floor, and the lean figure he had summoned bowed before him. The man, whose very name was a shuddering watchword of horror to all Western Asia, was soft-spoken and moved with the mincing ease of a cat. But the stark evil of his soul showed in his dark countenance, gleamed in his narrow slit eyes. He was chief of the Akinji, those wild riders whose raids spread fear and desolation throughout all lands beyond the Grand Turk's borders. He stood in full armour, a jeweled helmet on his narrow head. The wide vulture wings made fast to the shoulders of his gilded chainmail hauberk. Those wings spread wide in the wind when he rode, and under their pinions lay the shadows of death and destruction. It was Suleiman's scimitar tip, the most noted slayer of a nation of slayers who stood before the Grand Vizier. Soon you will precede the hosts of our master to the land of the infidel, said Ibrahim. It will be your order, as always, to strike and spare not. You will waste the fields and the vineyards of the Kafars. You will burn their villages. You will strike down their men with arrows and lead away their wenches captive. Lands beyond our line of march will cry out beneath your heel. That is good hearing, favoured of Allah, answered Mikhail Oglu in his soft, courteous voice. Yet there is an order within the order, continued Ibrahim, fixing a piercing eye on the Akinji. You know the German, von Kambach? I, Gombuk, as the Tatars call him. So, this is my command. Whoever fights or flees, lives or dies, this man must not live. Search him out wherever he lies, though the hunt may carry you to the very banks of the Rhine. When you bring me his head, your reward shall be thrice its weight in gold. To hear is to obey, my lord. Men say he is a vagabond son of a noble German family, whose ruin has been wine and women. They say he was once a knight of St. John, cast forth for the guzzling end. Yet do not underrate him, answered Ibrahim grimly. Sot he may be, but if he rode with Machali, he is not to be despised. See thou to it. There is no den where he can hide from me, O favoured of Allah, declared Mikhal Oglu. No night dark enough to conceal him, no forest thick enough. If I bring you not his head... I give him leave to send you mine. Enough! Ibrahim grinned and tugged at his beard, well pleased. You have my leave to go. The sinister vulture-winged figure went springingly and silently from the blue chamber. Nor could Ibrahim guess that he was taking the first steps in a feud which would spread over years and far lands, 
swelling in dark tides to draw in thrones and kingdoms and red-haired women more beautiful than the flames of hell. Chapter 2 In a small thatched hut in a village not far from the Danube, lusty snores resounded where a figure reclined in state on a ragged cloak thrown over a heap of straw. It was the paladin, Gottfried von Kalmbach, who slept the sleep of innocence and ale. The velvet vest, voluminous silken trousers, kalat and chagrin boots, gifts from a contemptuous sultan, were nowhere in evidence. The paladin was clad in worn leather and rusty mail. Hands tugged at him, breaking his sleep, and he swore drowsily. Wake up, my lord. Oh, wake up, good knight. Good pig. Good soul dog. Will you wake then? Fill my flagon, host, mumbled the slumberer. Who? What? May the dogs bite you, Ivica. I've not another asper, not a penny. Go off like a good lass and let me sleep. The girl renewed her tugging and shaking. O Dolt, rise, gird on your spit. There are happenings forward. Ivga, muttered Gottfried, pulling away from her attack. Take my burgonet to the Jew. He'll give you enough for it to get drunk again. Fool, she cried in despair. It isn't money I want. The whole east is aflame, and none knows the reason thereof. Has the rain ceased? asked von Kambach, taking some interest in the proceedings at last. The rain ceased hours ago. You can only hear the drip from the thatch. Put on your sword and come out into the street. The men of the village are all drunk on your last silver, and the women know not what to think or do. Ah! The exclamation was broken from her by the sudden upleaping of a weird illumination which shone through the crevices of the hut. The German got unsteadily to his feet, quickly girt on the great two-handed sword, and struck his dented burgonet on his cropped locks. Then he followed the girl into the straggling street. She was a slender young thing, barefoot, clad only in a short tunic-like garment, through the wide rents of which gleamed generous expanses of white flesh. There seemed no life or movement in the village. Nowhere showed a light. Water dripped steadily from the eaves of the thatched roofs. Puddles in the muddy streets gleamed black. Wind sighed and moaned eerily through the black sodden branches of the trees which pressed in bulwarks of darkness about the little village. And in the southeast, towering higher into the leaden sky, rose the lurid crimson glow that set the dank clouds to smoldering. The girl, Ivga, cringed close to the tall German, whimpering. I'll tell you what it is, my girl, said he, scanning the glow. It's Suleiman's devils. They've crossed the river and they're burning the villages. Aye, I've seen glares like that in the sky before. I've expected him before now, but these cursed rains we've had for weeks must have held him back. Aye, it's the Ikinji, right enough, and they won't stop this side of Vienna. Look you, my girl, go quickly and quietly to the stable behind the hut and bring me my grey stallion. We'll slip out like mice from between the devil's fingers. The stallion will carry us both, easily. But the people of the village, she sobbed, wringing her hands. Eh, well... He said, God rest them. The men have drunk my ale valiantly, and the women have been kind. But horns of Satan girl, the grey nag won't carry a whole village. Go you, she returned. I'll stay and die with my people. 
The Turks won't kill you, he answered. They'll sell you to a fat old Stamboul merchant who'll beat you. I won't stay to be cut open and neither shall you. A terrible scream from the girl cut him short and he wheeled at the awful terror in her flaring eyes. Even as he did so, a hut at the lower end of the village sprang into flames, the sodden material burning slowly. A medley of screams and maddened yells followed the cry of the girl. In the sluggish light, figures danced and capered wildly. Gottfried, straining his eyes in the shadow, saw shapes swarming over the low mud wall which drunkenness and negligence had left unguarded. Damnation, he muttered. The accursed ones have ridden ahead of their fire. They've stolen on the village in the dark. Come on, girl. But even as he caught her white wrist to drag her away, she screamed and fought against him like a wild thing, mad with fear. The mud walls crashed at the point nearest them. It crumpled under the impact of a score of horses, and into the doomed village reigned the riders, distinct in the growing light. Huts were flaring up on all hands, screams rising to the dripping clouds as the invaders dragged shrieking women and drunken men from their hovels and cut their throats. Gottfried saw the lean figures of the horsemen, the firelight gleaming on their burnished steel. He saw the vulture's wings on the shoulders of the foremost, even as he recognised Mikhail Oglu. He saw the chief stiffen and point. At him, dogs! yelled the Akinji, his voice no longer soft, but strident as the rasp of a drawn sabre. It is Gombok, five hundred aspers to the man who brings me his head. With a curse, von Kambach bounded for the shadows of the nearest hut, dragging the screaming girl with him. Even as he leapt, he heard the twang of bowstrings, and the girl sobbed and went limp in his grasp. She sank down at his feet, and in the lurid glare, he saw the feathered end of an arrow quivering under her heart. With a low rumble, he turned towards his assailants as a fierce bear turns at bay. An instant he stood, head thrust truculently, sword gripped in both hands. Then, as a bear gives back from the onset of the hunters, he turned and fled from the hut, arrows whistling about him and glancing from the rings of his mail. There were no shots. The ride through the dripping forest had dampened the powder flasks of the raiders. Von Kambach quartered about the back of the hut, mindful of the fierce yells behind him, and gained the shed behind the hut he had occupied, wherein he stabled his grey stallion. Even as he reached the door, someone snarled like a panther in the semi-dark and cut viciously at him. He parried the stroke with the lifted sword and struck back with all the power of his broad shoulders. The great blade glanced stunningly from the Akinji's polished helmet and ran through the male links of his halberk, tearing the arm from the shoulder. The Mohammedan sank down with a groan, and the German sprang over his prostrate form. The grey stallion, wild with fear and excitement, neighed shrilly and reared as his master sprang on his back. No time for saddle or bridle. Godfrey dug his heels into the quivering flanks, and the great steed shot through the door like a thunderbolt, knocking men right and left like tenpins. Across the firelit open space, between the burning huts he raced, clearing crumpled corpses in his stride splashing his rider from head to heel as he thrashed through the puddles. The Akinji made after the flying rider, loosing their shafts and giving tongue like hounds. Those mounted spurred after him, while those who had entered the village on foot ran through the broken wall for their horses. Arrows flickered about Gottfried's head as he pulled his steed at the only point open to him, the unbroken western wall. 
It was touch and go, for the footing was tricky and treacherous, and never had the grey stallion attempted such a leap. Gottfried held his breath as he felt the great body beneath him gathering and tensing in full flight for the desperate effort. Then, with a volcanic heave of mighty thews, the stallion rose in the air and cleared the barrier with scarce an inch to spare. The pursuers yelled in amazement and fury and reined back. Born horsemen, though they were, they dared not attempt that breakneck leap. They lost time seeking gates and breaks in the walls, and when they finally emerged from the village, the black, dank, whispering, dripping forest had swallowed up their prey. Mikal Oglu swore like a fiend, and leaving his lieutenant Othman in charge with instructions to leave no living human being in the village, he pressed on after the fugitive. Following the trail by torches in the muddy mould and swearing to run him down if the road led under the very walls of Vienna. Chapter 3 Allah did not will it that Mikhail Oglu should take. Gottfried von Kalmbach's head in the dark, dripping forest. He knew the country better than they, and in spite of their zeal, they lost his trail in the darkness. Dawn found Gottfried riding through terror-stricken farmlands, with the flame of a burning world lighting the east and south. The country was thronged with fugitives, staggering under pitiful loads of household goods, driving bellowing cattle, like people fleeing the end of the world. The torrential rain that had offered false promise of security had not long stayed the march of the Grand Turk. With a quarter million followers, he was ravaging the eastern marches of Christendom. While Gottfried had loitered in the taverns of isolated villages, drinking up the Sultan's bounty, Peths and Buddha had fallen. The German soldiers of the latter having been slaughtered by the Janissaries after promises of safety sworn by Suleiman, whom men named the Generous. While Ferdinand and the nobles and bishops squabbled at the day of spires, the elements alone seemed to war for Christendom. Rain fell in torrents, and through the floods that changed plains and forest bed to dank morasses, the Turks struggled grimly. They drowned in raging rivers and lost great stores of ammunition, ordnance, and supplies when boats capsized, bridges gave way, and wagons mired. But on they came, driven by the implacable will of Suleiman, and now in September 1529, over the ruins of Hungary, the Turk swept on Europe, with the Akinji, the Sackmen, ravaging the land like the drift ahead of a storm. This in part Gottfried learned from the fugitives as he pushed his weary stallion towards the city, which was the only sanctuary for the panting thousands. Behind him, the skies flamed red, and the screams of butchered victims came dimly down the wind to his ears. Sometimes he could even make out the swarming black masses of wild horsemen. The wings of the vulture beat horrifically over the butchered land, and the shadows of those great wings fell across all Europe. Again, the destroyer was riding out of the blue, mysterious east, as his brothers had ridden before him, Attila, Subotai, Bayazid. Muhammad the Conqueror. But never before had such a storm risen against the West. Before the waving vulture wings, the road thronged with wailing fugitives. Behind them, it ran red and silent, strewn with mangled shapes that cried no more. 
The killers were not a half hour behind him when Gottfried von Kambach rode his reeling stallion through the gates of Vienna. The people on the walls had heard the wailing for hours, rising awfully on the wind. And now, afar, they saw the sun flicker on the points of lances as the horsemen rode in amongst the masses of fugitives, toiling down from the hills into the plain which girdles the city. They saw the play of naked steel, like sickles among ripe grain. Von Kambach found the city in turmoil, the people swirling and screaming about Count Nicholas Salm, the seventy-year-old war horse who commanded Vienna, and his aides, Rogendroff, Count Nicholas Zerinyi, and Paul Bakitz. Salm was working with frantic haste, levelling houses near the walls and using their material to brace the ramparts, which were old and unstable, nowhere more than six feet thick, and in many places crumbling and falling down. The outer palisades were so frail it bore the name of Stadzan, City Hedge. Under the lashing energy of Count Salm, a new wall twenty feet high was thrown up from the Stuben to the Kanthana Gate. Ditches interior to the old moat were digged, and ramparts erected from the drawbridge to the Sal's Gate. Roofs were stripped of shingles to lessen the chance of fire, and paving was ripped up to soften the impact of cannonballs. The suburbs had been deserted, and now they were fired lest they give shelter to the besiegers. In the process, which was carried out in the very teeth of the oncoming sackmen, conflagrations broke out in the city and added to the delirium. It was all hell and bedlam turned loose, and in the midst of it, 5,000 wretched non-combatants, old men and women and children, were ruthlessly driven from the gates to shift for themselves. And their screams, as the Akinji swooped down, maddened the people within the walls. These Hellions were arriving by thousands, topping the skyline and sweeping down on the city in irregular squadrons, like vultures gathering about a dying camel. Within an hour after the first swarm had appeared, no Christian remained alive outside the gates, except those bound by long ropes to the saddle peaks of their captors and forced to run at full speed or be dragged to death. The wild riders swirled about the walls, yelling and loosing their shafts. Men on the towers recognized the dread of Mikhail Oglu by the wings on his cuirass, and noted that he rode from one heap of dead to another, avidly scanning each corpse in turn, pausing to glare questioningly at the battlements. Meanwhile, from the west, a band of German and Spanish troops cut their way through a cordon of sackmen and marched into the streets to the accompaniment of frenzied cheers. Philip the Palgrave at their head. Gottfried von Kambach leaned on his sword and watched them pass in their gleaming breastplates and plumed crested helmets, with long matchlocks on their shoulders and two-handed swords strapped to their steel-clad backs. He was a curious contrast in his rusty chainmail, old-fashioned harness picked up here and there and slovenly pieced together. He seemed like a figure out of the past, rusty and tarnished watching a newer, brighter generation go by. Yet Philip saluted him with a glance of recognition as the shining column swung past. Von Kambach started towards the walls, where the gunners were firing frugally at the Akinji, who showed some disposition to climb upon the bastions on lariats thrown from their saddles. But on the way, he heard that Salm 
was impressing nobles and soldiers in the task of digging moats and rearing new earthworks, and in great haste he took refuge in a tavern, where he bullied the host, a knock-kneed and apprehensive Valachian, into giving him credit, and rapidly drank himself into a state where no one would have considered asking him to do any kind of work. Shots, shouts, and screams reached his ears, but he paid scant heed. He knew that the Akinji would strike and pass on, to ravage the country beyond. He learned from the tavern talk that Sam had 20,000 pikemen, 2,000 horsemen and 1,000 volunteer citizens to oppose Suleiman's horde, together with 70 guns, cannons, demi-cannons and culverins. The news of the Turks' numbers numbed all hearts with dread. All but von Kambach's. He was a fatalist in his way, but he discovered a conscience in ale, and was presently brooding over the people the miserable Viennese had driven forth to perish. The more he drank, the more melancholy he became, and maudlin tears dripped from the drooping ends of his moustaches. At last he rose unsteadily and took up his great sword, muzzily intent on challenging Count Sam to a duel because of the matter. He bellowed down the timid importunities of the Valachian and weaved out on the street. To his groggy sight, the towers and spies cavorted crazily. People jostled him, knocking him aside as they ran about aimlessly. Philip the Palgrave strode by, clanking in his armour, and the keen, dark faces of his Spaniards contrasting with the square, florid countenances of the land's connects. Shame on you, von Kambach, said Philip sternly. The Turk is upon us, and you keep your snout shoved in an ale pot. Whose snout is in what ale pot? demanded Gottfried, weaving in an erratic half circle as he fumbled at his sword. Devil bite you, Philip. I'll wrap your pate for that. The palgrave was already out of sight, and eventually Gottfried found himself on the Carthena Tower, only vaguely aware of how he had got there. But what he saw sobered him suddenly. The Turk was indeed upon Vienna. The plain was covered with his tents, 30,000, some said, and swore that from the lofty spire of St. Stephen's Cathedral, a man could not see their limits. 400 of his boats lay on the Danube, and Gottfried heard men cursing the Austrian fleet, which lay helpless far upstream, because his sailors, long unpaid, refused to man the ships. He also heard that Sam had made no reply at all to Suleiman's demand to surrender. Now, partly as a gesture, partly to all the Kaffar dogs, the Grand Turk's array was moving in orderly procession before the ancient walls, before settling down to the business of the siege. The sight was enough to awe the stoutest. The low-swinging sun struck fire from polished helmet, jeweled saber hilt, and lance point. It was as if a river of shining steel flowed leisurely and terribly past the walls of Vienna. The Akinji, who ordinarily formed the vanguard of the host, had swept on, but in their place rode the Tartars of Crimea, crouched on their high-peaked, short-stirruped saddles, their gnome-like heads guarded by iron helmets, their stocky bodies with bronze breastplates and lacquered leather. Behind them came the Azabs, the irregular infantry, Kurds and Arabs for the most part, a wild, motley horde. Then their brothers, the Delis, the Madcaps, Wild men on tough ponies, fantastically adorned with fur and feathers. The riders wore caps and mantles of leopard skin. Their unshorn hair hung in tangled strands about their high shoulders, and over their matted beards their eyes glared the madness of fanaticism and bung. After them came the real body of the army, 
First the bays and emirs with their retainers, horsemen and footmen from the feudal fiefs of Asia Minor. Then the spahis, the heavy cavalry, on splendid steeds. And last of all, the real strength of the Turkish Empire, the most terrible military organization in the world, the Janissaries. On the walls, men spat in black fury, recognizing kindred blood, for the Janissaries were not Turks. With few exceptions, where Turkish parents had smuggled their offspring into the ranks to save them from the grinding life of a peasant, they were sons of Christians, Greeks, Serbs, Hungarians, stolen in infancy and raised in the ranks of Islam, knowing but one master, the Sultan, but one occupation, slaughter. Their beardless features contrasted with those of their oriental masters. Many had blue eyes and yellow moustaches, but all their faces were stamped with the wolfish ferocity to which they had been reared. Under their dark blue cloaks glinted fine mail, and many wore steel skullcaps under their curious high-peaked hats, from which depended a white sleeve-like piece of cloth, and through which was thrust a copper spoon. Long bird-of-paradise plumes likewise adorned these strange headpieces. Besides scimitars, pistols, and daggers, each Janissary bore a matchlock, and their officers carried pots of coals for the lighting of the matches. Up and down the ranks scurried the dervishes, clad only in cowpacks of camel hair and green aprons fringed with ebony beads, extorting the faithful. Military bands, the inventions of the Turks, marched with the columns, cymbals clashing, lutes twanging. Over the flowing sea, the banners tossed and swayed. The crimson flag of the Spahis, the white banner of the Janissaries, with its two-edged sword worked in gold, and the horsetail standards of the rulers. Seven tails for the sultan, six for the grand vizier, three for the Aghar of the Janissaries. So Suleiman paraded his powers before the despairing Kafar eyes, but von Kampak's gaze was centred on the groups that laboured to set up the ordinance of the sultan, and he shook his head in bewilderment. Demi-culverins, sakers and falconets, he grunted. Where the devils all the heavy artillery Suleiman's so proud of? At the bottom of the Danube, a Hungarian pikeman grinned fiercely and spat as he answered. Wolf Hagen sank that part of the Soldan's flotilla. The rest of his cannon and cannon royal, they say, were mired because of the rains. A slow grin bristled Gottfried's moustache. What was Suleiman's word to Psalm? That he'd eat breakfast in Vienna day after tomorrow, the 29th. Gottfried shook his head ponderously. Chapter 4 The siege commenced with the roaring of cannons, the whistling of arrows, and the blasting crash of matchlocks. The Janissaries took possession of the ruined suburbs where fragments of the walls gave them shelter. Under a screen of irregulars and a volley of arrow fire, they advanced methodically just after dawn. On a gun turret on the threatened wall, leaning on his great sword and meditatively twisting his moustache, Gottfried von Karbach watched a Transylvanian gunner being carried off the wall, his brain oozing from a hole in his head. A Turkish matchlock had spoken too near the walls. 
The field pieces of the sultan were barking like deep-toned dogs, knocking chips off the battlements. The Janissaries were advancing, kneeling, firing, reloading as they came on. Bullets glanced from the crenelles and whined off venomously into space. One flattened against Gottfried's halberk, bringing an outraged grunt from him. Turning towards the abandoned gun, he saw a colourful, incongruous figure bending over the massive breach. It was a woman, dressed as von Kambach, had not seen even the dandies of France dressed. She was tall, splendidly shaped, but lithe. From under a steel cap escaped rebellious tresses that rippled red gold in the sun over her compact shoulders. High boots of Cordovan leather came to her mid-thighs, which were cased in baggy breeches. She wore a shirt of fine Turkish mesh mail tucked into her breeches. Her supple waist was confined by a flowing sash of green silk, into which were thrust a brace of pistols and a dagger, and from which depended a long Hungarian sabre. Over all was carelessly thrown a scarlet cloak. This surprising figure was bending over the cannon, sighting it in a manner betokening more than a passing familiarity at a group of Turks who were wheeling a carriage gun just within range. Hey, Red Sonja, shouted a man-at-arms, waving his pike. Give him hell, my lass. Trust me, dog brother, she retorted as she applied the glowing match to the vent. But I wish my mark was Roxalana's. A terrific detonation drowned her words, and a swirl of smoke blinded everyone on the turret as the terrific recoil of the overcharged cannon knocked the firer flat on her back. She sprang up like a spring rebounding and rushed to the embrasure, peering eagerly through the smoke, which, clearing, showed the ruin of the gun crew. The huge ball, bigger than a man's head, had smashed full into the group clustered about the saker, and now they lay on the torn ground, their skulls blasted by the impact, or their bodies mangled by the flying iron splinters from their shattered gun. A cheer went up from the tower, and the woman called Red Sonja yelled with sincere joy and did the steps of a Cossack dance. Gottfried approached, eyeing in open admiration the splendid swell of her bosom under the pliant mail the curves of her ample hips and rounded limbs. She stood as a man might stand, booted legs braced wide apart, thumbs hooked into her girdle, but she was all woman. She was laughing as she faced him, and he noted with fascination the dancing, sparkling lights and changing colours of her eyes. She raked back her rebellious locks with a powder-stained hand, and he wondered at the clear, pink whiteness of her firm flesh where it was unstained. Why did you wish for the Sultana, Roxolana, for a target, my girl? he asked. Because she's my sister, the slut, answered Sonia. At that instant, a great cry thundered over the walls, and the girl started like a wild thing, ripping out her blade in a long flash of silver in the sun. I've heard that bellow, she cried. The Janissaries! Gottfried was already on his way to the embrasures. He too had heard before the terrible soul-shaking shout of the charging Janissaries. Suleiman meant to waste no time on the city that barred him from helpless Europe. He meant to crush its frail walls in one storm. The Bashi Bazuki, the Irregulars, died like flies to screen the main advance, and over heaps of the dead the Janissaries thundered against Vienna. In the teeth of cannonade and musket volley they surged on, crossing the moats on scaling ladders laid across bridge-like. 
Whole ranks went down as the Austrian guns roared, but now the attackers were under the walls and the cumbrous balls whirled over their heads to work havoc in the rear ranks. The Spanish matchlock men, firing almost straight down, took ghastly toll. But now the ladders gripped the walls and the chanting madmen surged upward. Arrows whistled, striking down the defenders. Behind them the Turkish field pieces boomed, careless of injury to friend as well as foe. Gottfried, standing at an embrasure, was overthrown by a sudden terrific impact. A ball had smashed the Merlin, braining half a dozen defenders. Gottfried rose, half-stunned, out of the debris of the mason and huddled corpses. He looked down into an uprushing waste of snarling, impassioned faces where eyes glared like mad dogs and blades glinted like sunbeams on water. Bracing his feet wide, he heaved up his great sword and lashed down. His jaw jutted out, his moustache bristled. The five-foot blade caved in steel caps and skulls, lashing through uplifted bucklers and iron shoulder pieces. Men fell from the ladders, their nerveless fingers slipping from the bloody rungs. But they swarmed through the breach on either side of him. A terrible cry announced that the Turks had a foothold on the wall, but no man dared leave his post to go to the threatened point. To the dazed defenders, it seemed that Vienna was ringed by a glittering tossing sea that roared higher and higher about the doomed walls. Stepping back to avoid being hemmed in, Gottfried grunted and lashed right and left, His eyes were no longer cloudy. They blazed like a blue bale fire. Three Janizaries were down on his feet. His broadsword clanged in a forest of slashing scimitars. A blade splintered on his bassinet, filling his eyes with fire-shot blackness. Staggering, he struck back and felt his great blade crunch home. Blood jetted over his hands, and he tore his sword clear. Then, with a yell and a rush, someone was at his side, and he heard the quick splintering of mail beneath the madly flailing strokes of a saber that flashed like silver lightning before his clearing sight. It was Red Sonia who had come to his aid, and her onslaught was no less terrible than that of a she-panther. Her strokes followed each other too quickly for the eye to follow. Her blade was a blur of white fire, and men went down like ripe grain before the reaper. With a deep roar, Gottfried strode to her side, bloody and terrible, swinging his great blade. Forced irresistibly back, the Muslims wavered on the edge of the wall, then leaped for the ladders or fell screaming through empty space. Oaths flowed in a steady stream from Sonia's red lips, and she laughed wildly as her saber sang home and blood spurted across the edge. The last Turk on the battlement screamed and parried wildly as she pressed him, then dropping his scimitar, his clutching hands closed desperately on her dripping blade. With a groan, he swayed on the edge, blood gushing from his horribly cut fingers. Hell to you, dog soul, she laughed. The devil can stir your broth for you. With a twist and a wrench, she tore away her saber, severing the wretch's fingers. With a moaning cry, he pitched backwards and fell headlong. On all sides, the Janissaries were falling back. The field pieces halted while the fighting went on on the walls, were booming again, and the Spaniards, kneeling at the embrasures, were returning the fire with their matchlocks. Gottfried approached Red Sonja, who was cleansing her blade, swearing softly. By God, my girl, he said, extending a huge hand. Had you not come to my aid, I think I'd have supped in hell this night. I thank, thank the devil, retorted Red Sonia rudely, slapping his hand aside. The Turks were on the wall. Don't think I risked my hide to save yours, dog brother. 
and with a scornful flirt of her wide coattails, she swaggered off down the battlements, giving back promptly and profanely the rude sallies of the soldiers. Gottfried scowled at her. Anna Landsknecht slapped him jovially on the shoulder. Eh, she's a devil, that one. She drinks the strongest head under the table and outswears a Spaniard. She's no man's light of love. Cut, slash, death to you, dog soul. That's her way. Who is she, in devil's name? growled von Kambach. Red Sonja from Rogatino. That's all we know. Marches and fights like a man, God knows why. Swears she's sister to Roxolana, the Soldan's favourite. If the Tartars who grabbed Roxolana that night had got Sonja by Saint Piotr, Suleiman would have had a handful. Let her alone, sir brother. She's a wild cat. Come and have a tankard of ale. The Janissaries, summoned before the Grand Vizier to explain why the attack failed after the wall had been scaled at one place, swore they had been confronted by a devil in the form of a red-headed woman, aided by a giant in rusty mail. Ibrahim discounted the woman, but the description of the man woke a half-forgotten memory in his mind. After dismissing the soldiers, he summoned the Tatar, Yaruk Khan, and dispatched him up-country to demand of Mikhail Oglu why he had not sent a certain head to the royal tent. Chapter 5 Suleiman did not eat his breakfast in Vienna on the morning of the 29th. He stood on the height of Semmering, before his rich pavilion with its gold-knobbed pinnacles and its guard of 500 solaks, and watched his light batteries pecking vainly away at the frail walls. He saw his irregulars wasting their lives like water, striving to fill the fosse, and he saw his sappers burrowing like moles, driving mines and countermines nearer and nearer the bastions. Within the city there was little ease. Night and day the walls were manned. In the cellars the Viennese watched the faint vibrations of peas on drumheads that betrayed the sound of digging in the earth that told of Turkish mind burrowing under the walls. They sank their countermines accordingly, and men fought no less fiercely under the earth than above. Vienna was the one Christian island in a sea of infidels. Night by night, men watched the horizon burning where the Ikinji yet scoured the agonized land. Occasionally, word came from the outer world, slaves escaping from the camp and slipping into the city. Always their news was fresh horror. In Upper Austria, less than a third of the inhabitants were left alive. Mikhail Oglu was outdoing himself, and the people said it was evident the vulture-winged one was looking for someone in particular. His slaves brought men's heads and heaped them high before him. He avidly searched among the grisly relics, then apparently, in fiendish disappointment, drove his devils to new atrocities. These tales, instead of paralyzing the Austrians with dread, fired them with the mad fury of desperation. Mines exploded, breaches were made, and the Turks swarmed in, but always the desperate Christians were there before them, and in the choking, blind, wild beast madness of hand-to-hand fighting, they paid in part the red debt they owed. September dwindled into October. The leaves turned brown and yellow on Wienerwald, and the winds blew cold. 
The watchers shivered at night on the walls that widened to the bite of the frost, but still the tents ringed the city, and still Suleiman sat in his magnificent pavilion and glared at the frail barrier that barred his imperial path. None but Ibrahim dared speak to him. His mood was black as the cold nights that crept down from the northern hills. The wind that moaned outside his tent seemed a dirge for his ambitions of conquest. Ibrahim watched him narrowly, and after a vain onset that lasted from dawn till midday, he called off the Janizaries and bade them retire to the ruined suburbs and rest. And he sent a bowman to shoot a very certain shaft into a very certain part of the city, where certain persons were waiting for just such an event. No more attacks were made that day. The field pieces which had been pounding at the Carthena gate for days were shifted northward to hammer at the burg. As an assault on that part of the wall seemed imminent, the bulk of the soldiery was shifted there. But the onslaught did not come, though the batteries kept up a steady fire, hour after hour. Whatever the reason, the soldiers gave thanks for the respite. They were dizzy with fatigue, mad with raw wounds and lack of sleep. That night, the great square, the Amhof Market, seethed with soldiers, while civilians looked on enviously. A great store of wine had been discovered in the cellars of a rich Jewish merchant, who had hoped to reap triple profit when all other liquor in the city was gone. In spite of their offices, the half-crazed men rolled the great hogsheads into the square and broached them. Sam gave up the attempt to control them. Better drunkenness, growled the old warhorse, than for the men to fall in their tracks from exhaustion. He paid the Jew from his own purse. In relays, the soldiers came from the walls and drank deep. In the glare of cressets and torches, to the accompaniment of drunken shouts and songs, to which the occasional rumble of a cannon played a sinister undertone, von Kambach dipped his bassinet into a barrel and brought it out, brimful and dripping. Sinking his moustache into the liquid, he paused as his clouded eyes over the rim of the steel cap rested on a strutting figure on the other side of the hogshead. Resentment touched his expression. Red Sonia had already visited more than one barrel. Her burgeonette was thrust sideways on her rebellious locks. Her swagger was wilder, her eyes more mocking. Ha! She cried scornfully. It's the Turk killer, with his nose deep in a keg, as usual. Devil bite all toppers. She consistently thrust a jeweled goblet into the crimson flood and emptied it at a gulp. Gottfried stiffened resentfully. He had had a tilt with Sonia already, and he still smarted. Why should I even look at you, in your ragged harness and empty purse? She had mocked. Even when Paul Bakich is mad for me. Go along, guzzler. Be a keg. Be damned to you, he had retorted. You needn't be so high, just because your sister is the Soldan's mistress. At that, she had flown into an awful passion, and they had parted with mutual curses. Now, from the devil in her eyes, he saw that she intended making things further uncomfortable for him. Hussy, he growled, I'll drown you in this hogshead. Nay, you'll drown yourself first, boar pig, she shouted amid a roar of rough laughter. A pity you aren't as valiant against the Turks as you are against the wine butts. Dogs bite you, slut, he roared. How can I break their heads when they stand off and pound us with cannonballs? Shall I throw my dagger at them from the wall? There are a thousand just outside, she retorted, in the grip of madness induced by drink and her own wild nature, if any had the guts to go to them. By God, the maddened giant dragged out his great sword. No baggage can call me coward. 
sot or not. I'll go out upon them if never a man follow me. Bedlam followed his bellow. The drunken temper of the crowd was fit for such madness. The nearly empty hogsheads were deserted as men tipsily drew sword and reeled towards the outer gates. Wolf Hagen fought his way into the storm, buffeting men right and left, shouting fiercely, Wait, you drunken fools! Don't search out in this shape! Wait! They brushed him aside, sweeping on in a blind, senseless torrent. Dawn was just beginning to tip the eastern hills. Somewhere in the strangely silent Turkish camp, a drum began to throb. Turkish sentries stared wildly and loosed their matchlocks in the air to warn the camp, appalled at the sight of the Christian horde pouring over the narrow drawbridge, 8,000 strong, brandishing swords and ale tankards. As they foamed over the moat, a terrific explosion rent the din, and a portion of the wall near the Carthena gate seemed to detach itself and rise into the air. A great shout rose from the Turkish camp, but the attackers did not pause. They rushed headlong into the suburbs, and there they saw the Janissaries, not rousing from slumber, but fully clad and armed, being hurriedly drawn up in charging lines. Without pausing, they burst headlong into the half-formed ranks. Far outnumbered, their drunken fury and velocity was yet irresistible. Before the madly thrashing axes and lashing broadswords, the Janissaries reeled back, dazed and disorganised. The suburbs became a shambles where battling men, slashing and hewing at one another, stumbled on mangled bodies and severed limbs. Suleiman and Ibrahim, on the height of Semering, saw the invincible Janissaries in full retreat, streaming out toward the hills. In the city, the rest of the defenders were working madly to repair the great breach the mysterious explosion had torn in the wall. Salm gave thanks for that drunken sortie. But for it, the Janissaries would have been pouring through the breach before the dust settled. All was confusion in the Turkish camp. Suleiman ran to his horse and took charge in person, shouting at the Spahis. They formed ranks and swung down the slopes in orderly squadrons. The Christian warriors, still following their fleeing enemies, suddenly awakened to their danger. Before them, the Janissaries were still falling back, but on either flank the horsemen of Asia were galloping to cut them off. Fear replaced drunken recklessness. They began to fall back, and the retreat quickly became a rout. Screaming in blind panic, they threw away their weapons and fled for the drawbridge. The Turks rode them down to the water's edge and tried to follow them across the bridge into the gates which were opened for them. And there at the bridge, Wolf Hagen and his retainers met the pursuers and held them hard. The flood of the fugitives flowed past him to safety. On him, the Turkish tide broke like a red wave. He loomed a steel-clad giant in a waste of spears. Gottfried von Kambach did not voluntarily quit the field, but the rush of his companions swept him along the tide of flight, blaspheming bitterly. Presently, he lost his footing and his panic-stricken comrades stampeded across his prostrate frame. When the frantic heels ceased to drum on his mail, he raised his head and saw that he was near the fosse and naught but Turks around him. Rising, he ran lumberingly towards the moat, into which he plunged unexpectedly, looking back over his shoulder at a pursuing Muslim. He came up floundering and spluttering, and made for the opposite bank, splashing water like a buffalo. The blood-mad Mohammedan was close behind him, an Algerian corsair, as much at home in the water as out. 
the stubborn German would not drop his great sword, and burdened by his mail, just managed to reach the other bank, where he clung, utterly exhausted, and unable to lift a hand in defense as the Algerian swirled in, dagger gleamed above his naked shoulder. Then someone swore heartily on the bank hard by. A slim hand thrust a long pistol into the Algerian's face. He screamed as it exploded, making a ghastly ruin of his head. Another slim, strong hand gripped the sinking German by the scruff of his mail. Grab the bank, fool, gritted a voice, indicative of great effort. I can't heave you up alone. You must weigh a ton. Pull, dolt, pull. Blowing, gasping, and floundering, Gottfried half-clambered, was half-lifted, out of the moat. He showed some disposition to lie on his belly and wretch, what of the dirty water he had swallowed, but his rescuer urged him to his feet. The Turks are crossing the bridge, and the lads are closing the gates against them. Haste, before we're cut off. Inside the gate, Gottfried stared about, as if waking from a dream. Where's Wolfhagen? I saw him holding the bridge, lying dead amongst twenty dead Turks, answered Red Sonja. Gottfried sat down on a piece of fallen wall, and because he was shaken and exhausted and still mazed with drink and bloodlust, he sank his face in his huge hands and wept. Sonja kicked him disgustedly. Name of Satan, man. Don't sit and blubber like a spanked schoolgirl. You drunkards had to play the fool, but that can't be mended. Come, let's go to the Valoon's Tavern and drink ale. Why did you pull me out of the moat? He asked. Because a great oaf like you can never help himself. I see you need a wise person like me to keep life in that hulking frame. But I thought you despised me. Well, a woman can change her mind, can't she? She snapped. Along the walls, the pikemen were repelling the frothing Muslims, thrusting them off the partly repaired breach. In the royal pavilion, Ibrahim was explaining to his master that the devil had undoubtedly inspired that drunken sortie just at the right moment to spoil the Grand Vizier's carefully laid plans. Suleiman, wild with fury, spoke shortly to his friend for the first time. Nay, thou hast failed. Have done with thine intrigues. Where craft has failed, sheer force shall prevail. Send a rider for the Akinji. They are needed here to replace the fallen. Bid the hosts to attack again. Chapter 6 The preceding onslaughts were not to the storm that now burst on Vienna's reeling walls. Night and day, the cannons flashed and thundered. Bombs burst on roofs and in the streets. When men died on the walls, there was none to take their places. Fear of famine stalked the streets, and the darker fear of treachery ran black-mantled through the alleys. Investigation showed that the blast that had rent the Carthena wall had not been fired from without. In a mine tunneled from an unsuspected cellar inside the city, a heavy charge of powder had been exploded beneath the wall. One or two men working secretly might have done it. It was now apparent that the bombardment of the Berg had been merely a gesture to draw attention away from the Carthena wall, to give the traders an opportunity to work undiscovered. Count Sam and his aides did the work of giants. The aged commander, fired with superhuman energy, trod the walls, braced the faltering, aided the wounded, fought in the breaches side by side with the common soldiers, while death dealt his blows unsparingly. But if death supped within the walls, he feasted full without. 
Suleiman drove his men as relentlessly as if he were their worst foe. Plague stalked among them, and the ravaged countryside yielded no food. The cold winds howled down from the Carpathians, and the warriors shivered in their light oriental garb. In the frosty nights, the hands of the sentries froze to their matchlocks. The ground grew hard as flint, and the sappers toiled feebly with blunted tools. Rain fell, mingled with sleet, extinguishing matches, wetting powder, turning the plain outside the city to a muddy wallow, where rotting corpses sickened the living. Suleiman shuddered as with an ague as he looked out over the camp. He saw his warriors, worn and haggard, toiling in the muddy plain like ghosts under the gloomy, leaden skies. The stench of his slaughtered thousands was in his nostrils. In that instant, it seemed to the sultan that he looked on a grey plain of the dead, where corpses dragged their lifeless bodies to an outworn task, animated only by the ruthless will of their master. For an instant, the Tartar in his veins rose above the Turk, and he shook with fear. Then his lean jaws set. The walls of Vienna staggered drunkenly, patched and repaired in a score of places. How could they stand? Sound for the onslaught, 30,000 aspers to the first man on the walls. The Grand Vizier spread his hands helplessly. The spirit is gone out of the warriors. They cannot endure the miseries of this icy land. Drive them to the walls with whips, answered Suleiman grimly. This is the gate to Frankistan. It is through it we must ride the road to empire. Drums thundered through the camp. The weary defenders of Christendom rose up and gripped their weapons, electrified by the instinctive knowledge that the death grip had come. In the teeth of roaring matchlocks and swinging broadswords, the officers of the Sultan drove the Muslim hosts. Whips cracked and men cried out blasphemously up and down the lines. Maddened, they hurled themselves at the reeling walls, riddled with great breaches, yet still barriers behind which desperate men could crouch. Charge after charge rolled on over the choked foss, broke on the staggering walls and rolled back, leaving its wash of dead. Night fell unheeded, and through the darkness, lighted by blaze of cannon and flare of torches, the battle raged. Driven by Suleiman's terrible will, the attackers fought throughout the night, heedless of all Muslim tradition. Dawn rose as on Armageddon. Before the walls of Vienna lay a vast carpet of steel-clad dead. Their plumes waved in the wind, and across the corpses staggered the hollow-eyed attackers to grapple with the day's defenders. The steel tides rolled and broke and rolled on again, till the very gods must have stood aghast at the giant capacity of men for suffering and enduring. It was the Armageddon of races, Asia against Europe. Above the walls raved a sea of eastern faces. Turks, Tartars, Kurds, Arabs, Algerians. Snarling, screaming, dying before the roaring matchlocks of the Spaniards, the thrust of the Austrian pikes, the strokes of the German Landknechts, who swung their two-handed swords like reapers mowing ripe grain. Those within the walls were no more heroic than those without, stumbling among the fields of their own dead. To Gottfried von Kambach, life had faded to a single meaning, the swinging of his great sword. In the wide breach of the Carthage Tower, he fought until time lost all meaning. For long ages, maddened faces rose snarling before him, the faces of devils, and scimitars flashed before his eyes everlastingly. He did not feel his wounds, nor the drain of weariness. 
Gasping in the choking dust, blind with sweat and blood, he dealt death like a harvest. Dimly aware that at his side, a slim, pantherish figure swayed and smote, at first with laughter, curses, and snatches of song, later in grim silence. His identity as an individual was lost in that cataclysm of swords. He hardly knew it when Count Salm was death-stricken at his side by a bursting bomb. He was not aware when night crept over the hills, nor did he realise at last that the tide was slackening and ebbing. He was only dimly aware that Nicolas Zerigny tore him away from the corpse-choked breach, saying, God's name, man, go and sleep, we've beaten them off, for the time being, at least. He found himself in a narrow, winding street, all dark and forsaken. He had no idea of how he had got there, but seemed vaguely to remember a hand on his elbow, tugging, guiding. The weight of his mail pulled at his sagging shoulders. He could not tell if the sound he heard were the cannons fitfully roaring, or a throbbing in his own head. It seemed that there was someone he should look for, someone who meant a great deal to him. But all was vague. Somewhere, sometime, it seemed long, long ago, a sword stroke had cleft his bassinet. When he tried to think, he seemed to feel again the impact of that terrible blow, and his brain swam. He tore off the dented headpiece and cast it into the street. Again, the hand was tugging at his arm. A voice urged, Wine, my lord, drink. Dimly, he saw a lean, black-mailed figure extending a tankard. With a gasp, he caught at it and thrust his muzzle into the stinging liquor, gulping like a man dying of thirst. Then something burst in his brain. The night filled with a million flashing sparks, as if a powder magazine had exploded in his head. After that, darkness and oblivion. He came slowly to himself, aware of a raging thirst, an aching head, and an intense weariness that seemed to paralyze his limbs. He was bound, hand and foot, and gagged. Twisting his head, he saw that he was in a small, bare, dusty room from which a winding stone stair led up. He deduced that he was in a lower part of the tower. Over a guttering candle on a crude table stooped two men. They were both lean and hook-nosed, clad in plain black garments. Asiatics passed out. Godfrey listened to their low-toned conversation. He had picked up many languages in his wanderings. He recognized them. Churuk and his son, Rupin, Armenian merchants. He remembered that he had seen Churuk often in the last week or so, ever since the domed helmets of the Akinji had appeared in Suleiman's camp. Evidently, the merchant had been shadowing him for some reason. Churuk was reading what he had written on a bit of parchment. My lord, Though I blew up the Carthana wall in vain, yet I have news to make my lord's heart glad. My son and I have taken the German, von Kambach. As he left the wall, dazed with fighting, we followed, guiding him subtly to the ruined tower whereof you know, and, giving him drugged wine, bound him fast. Let my lord send the emir, Mikhail Oglu, to the wall by the tower, and we will give him to thy hands. We will bind him on the old mangonel and thrust him over the wall like a tree trunk. The Armenian took up an arrow and began to bind the parchment about the shaft with light silver wire. Take this to the roof and shoot it towards the mantelet as usual, he began, when Rupin exclaimed, Hark! and both froze, their eyes glittering like those of trapped vermin, fearful yet vindictive. 
Gottfried gnawed at the gag. It slipped. Outside, he heard a familiar voice. Gottfried, where the devil are you? His breath burst forth from him in a stentorian roar. Hey, Sonia, in the name of the devil, be careful, girl. Churuk snarled like a wolf and struck him savagely on the head with a scimitar hilt. Almost instantly, it seemed, the door crashed inwards. As in a dream, Gottfried saw Red Sonja framed in the doorway, pistol in hand. Her face was drawn and haggard, her eyes burned like coals, her bassinet was gone, and her scarlet cloak. Her mail was hacked and red-clotted, her boots slashed, her silken breeches splashed and spotted with blood. With a croaking cry, Churuk ran at her, scimitar lifted. Before he could strike, she crashed down the barrel of an empty pistol on his head, felling him like an ox. From the other side, the Rupin slashed at her with a curved Turkish dagger. Dropping the pistol, she closed with the young Oriental. Moving like someone in a dream, she bore him irresistibly backward, one hand gripping his wrist, the other his throat. Throttling him slowly, she inexorably crashed his head again and again against the stones of the wall until his eyes rolled up and set. Then she threw him from her like a sack of loose salt. God, she muttered thickly, reeling an instant in the center of the room, her hands to her head. Then she went to the captive and sinking stiffly to her knees, cut his bonds with fumbling strokes that sliced his flesh as well as the cords. How did you find me? He asked stupidly, clambering stiffly up. She reeled to the table and sank down in a chair. A flagon of wine stood at her elbow and she seized it avidly and drank. Then she wiped her mouth on her sleeve and surveyed him wearily but with renewed life. I saw you leave the wall and followed. I was so drunk from the fighting I scarcely knew what I did. I saw those dogs take your arm and lead you to the alleys and then I lost sight of you but I found your burgeonette lying outside in the street, and began shouting for you. What the hell's the meaning of this? She picked up the arrow and blinked at the parchment fastened to it. Evidently, she could read the Turkish characters, but she scanned it half a dozen times before the meaning became apparent to her exhaustion-numbed brain. Then her eyes flickered dangerously to the men on the floor. Churuk sat up, dazedly feeling the gash in his scalp. Rupin lay retching and gurgling on the floor. Tie them up, brother, she ordered, and Gottfried obeyed. The victims eyed the woman much more apprehensively than him. This missive is addressed to Ibrahim, the vizier, she said abruptly. Why does he want Gottfried's head? Because of a wound he gave the sultan at Mohach, answered Chorok uneasily. And you, you lower than dog, she smiled mirthlessly. You fired the mine at the Karthner. You and your spawn are the traitors among us. She drew and primed a pistol. When Zrini learns of you, she said, your end will be neither quick nor sweet. But first, you old swine, I'm going to give myself the pleasure of blowing out your cub's brains before your eyes. The old Armenian gave a choking cry. God of the fathers, have mercy. Kill me, torture me, but spare my son. At that instant, a new sound split the unnatural quiet. A great peal of bells shattered the air. What's this? roared Gottfried groping wildly at his empty scabbard. The bells of St. Stephen, cried Sonia. They peal for victory. She sprang for the sagging stair, and he followed her up the perilous way. They came out on a sagging, shattered roof, on a firmer part of which stood an ancient stone-casting machine, 
relic of an earlier age, and evidently recently repaired. The tower overlooked an angle of the wall, at which there were no watches. A section of the ancient glacis, and a ditch interior to the main moat, coupled with a steep natural pitch of the earth beyond, made the point practically invulnerable. The spies had been able to exchange messages here with little fear of discovery, and it was easy to guess the method used. Down the slope, just within, long arrow shot, stood up a huge mantelet of bullhide stretched on a wooden frame, as if abandoned there by chance. Gottfried knew that message-laden arrows were loosed from the tower roof into this mantelet. But just then, he gave little thought to that. His attention was riveted on the Turkish camp. There, a leaping glare paled the spreading dawn. Above the mad clangor of bells rose the crackle of flame, mingled with awful screams. The Janissaries are burning the prisoners, said Red Sonja. Judgment day in the morning, muttered Gottfried, awed at the sight that met his eyes. From their eyrie, the companions could see almost all the plain. Under a cold grey leaden sky, tinged a sombre crimson with dawn, it lay strewn with Turkish corpses as far as sight carried, and the hosts of the living were melting away. From Semmering, the great pavilion had vanished. The other tents were coming down swiftly. Already the head of the long column was out of sight, moving into the hills through the cold dawn. Snow began falling in light, swift flakes. The Janissaries were glutting their mad disappointment on the helpless captives, hurling men, women, and children living into the flames they had kindled under the somber eyes of their master, the monarch, men called the Magnificent, the Merciful. All the time the bells of Vienna clanged and thundered as if their bronze throats would burst. They shot their bolts last night, said Red Sonja. I saw their officers lashing them and heard them cry out in fear beneath our swords. Flesh and blood could stand no more. Look! She clutched her companion's arm. The Akinji will form the rear guard. Even at that distance, they made out a pair of vulture wings moving among the dark masses. The southern light glimmered on a jeweled helmet. Sonya's powder-stained hands clenched so that the pink broken nails bit into the white palms, and she spat out a Cossack curse that burned like vitriol. There he goes, the bastard, that made Austria a desert. How easily the souls of the butchered folk ride on his cursed winged shoulders. Anyway, old warhorse, he did not get your head. While he lives, it'll ride loose on my shoulders, rumbled the giant. Red Sonja's keen eyes narrowed suddenly. Seizing Gottfried's arm, she hurried downstairs. They did not see Nicholas Zerigny and Paul Bakitz riding out of the gates with their tattered retainers, risking their lives in sorties to rescue prisoners. Steel clashed along the line of march, and the Akinji retreated slowly, fighting a good rearguard action, balking the headlong courage of the attackers by their very numbers. Safe in the depths of his horsemen, Mikhail Oglu, grinned sardonically, but Suleiman, riding in the main column, did not grin. His face was like a death mask. Back in the ruined tower, Red Sonia propped one booted foot on a chair and cupping her chin in her hand, stared into the fear-dulled eyes of Churuk. What will you give for your life? The Armenian made no reply. What will you give for the life of your whelp? 
The Armenian stared as if stung. Spare my son, princess, he groaned. Anything, I will pay. I will do anything. She threw a shapely booted leg across the chair and sat down. I want you to bear a message to a man. What man? Mikhail Oglu. He shuddered and moistened his lips with his tongue. Instruct me, I obey, he whispered. Good, we'll free you and give you a horse. Your son shall remain here as hostage. If you fail us, I'll give the cub to the Viennese to play with. Again, the old Armenian shuddered. But if you play squarely, we'll let you both go free, and my pal and I will forget about this treachery. I want you to ride after Mikhail Oglu and tell him. Through the slush and driving snow, the Turkish column plodded slowly. Horses bent their heads to the blast. Up and down the straggling lines, camels groaned and complained, and oxen bellowed pitifully. Men stumbled through the mud, leaning beneath the weight of their arms and equipment. Night was falling, but no command had been given to halt. All day the retreating host had been harried by the daring Austrian cuirassiers, who darted down upon them like wasps, tearing captives from their very hands. Grimly rode Suleiman among his solaks. He wished to put as much distance as possible between himself and the scene of his first defeat, where the rotting bodies of 30,000 Mohammedans reminded him of his crushed ambitions. Lord of Western Asia he was, master of Europe he could never be. Those despised walls had saved the Western world from Muslim domination, and Suleiman knew it. The rolling thunder of the Ottoman power re-echoed around the world, paling the glories of Persia and Mughal India. But in the West, the yellow-haired Aryan barbarian stood unshaken. It was not written that the Turks should rule beyond the Danube. Suleiman had seen this written in blood and fire, as he stood on Semering and saw his warriors fall back from the ramparts, despite the flailing lashes of their officers. It had been to save his authority that he gave the order to break camp. It burned his tongue like gall, but already his soldiers were burning their tents and preparing to desert him. Now, in darkly brooding silence, he rode, not even speaking to Ibrahim. In his own way, Mikhail Oglu shared their savage despondency. It was with a ferocious reluctance that he turned his back on the land he had ruined, as a half-glutted panther might be driven from its prey. He recalled with satisfaction the blackened, corpse-littered wastes, the screams of tortured men, the cries of girls writhing in his iron arms, recalled with much the same sensations the death shrieks of those same girls in the blood-fouled hands of his killers. But he was stung with the disappointment of a task undone, for which the Grand Vizier had lashed him with stinging words. He was out of favour with Ibrahim, for a lesser man that might have meant a bowstring. For him it meant he would have to perform some prodigious feat to reinstate himself. In this mood, he was dangerous and reckless as a wounded panther. Snow fell heavily, adding to the miseries of the retreat. Wounded men fell in the mire and lay still, covered by a growing white mantle. Mikhail Oglu rode among his rearmost ranks, straining his eyes into the darkness. No foe had been sighted for hours. The victorious Austrians had ridden back to their city. 
The columns were moving slowly through a ruined village whose charred beams and crumbling fire-seared walls stood blackly in the falling snow. Word had come down the lines that the sultan would pass on through and camp in a valley which lay a few miles beyond. The quick drum of hoofs back along the way they had come caused the Akinji to grip their lances and glare slit-eyed into the flickering darkness. They heard but a single horse, and a voice was calling the name of Mikhail Oglu. With a word, the chief stayed a dozen lifted bows and shouted in return, a tall grey stallion loomed out of the flying snow. A black-mantled figure crouched grotesquely atop of it. Turuk, you Armenian dog! What in the name of Allah? The Armenian rode close to Mikhail Oglu and whispered urgently in his ear. The cold bit through the thickest garments. The Akinji noted that Turuk was trembling violently. His teeth chattered and he stammered in his speech, but the Turk's eyes blazed at the import of his message. Dog! Do you lie? May I rot in hell if I lie? A strong shudder shook Churuk, and he drew his kaftan close about him. He fell from his horse, riding with the cuirassiers to attack the rear guard, and lies with a broken leg in a deserted peasant's hut some three miles back, alone except for his mistress, Red Sonia, and three or four Lanskineks who had drunk on wine they found in the deserted camp. Mikhail Oglu wheeled his horse with sudden intent. Twenty men to me, he barked. The rest ride on with the main column. I go after a head worth its weight in gold. I'll overtake you before you go into camp. Othman caught his jeweled rein. Are you mad to ride back now? The whole country will be on our heels. He reeled in his saddle as Mikhail Oglu slashed him across the mouth with his riding whip. The chief wheeled away, followed by the men he had designated. Like ghosts, they vanished into the spectral darkness. Othman sat his horse uncertainly, looking after them. The snow shafted down. The wind sobbed drearily among the bare branches. There was no sound except the receding noises of the trudging column. Presently, these ceased. Then Othman started. Back along the way they had come, he heard a distant reverberation, a roar as of forty or fifty matchlocks speaking together. In the utter silence which followed, panic came upon Othman and his warriors. Whirling away, they fled through the ruined village after the retreating horde. Chapter 7 No one noticed when night fell on Constantinople, for the splendour of Suleiman made night no less glorious than day. Through gardens that were riots of blossoms and perfume, cressets twinkled like myriad fireflies. Fireworks turned the city into a realm of shimmering magic, above which the minarets of five hundred mosques rose like towers of fire in an ocean of golden foam. Tribesmen on Asian hills gaped and marvelled at the blaze that pulsed and glowed afar, paling the very stars. The streets of Stamboul were thronged with crowds in the attire of holiday and rejoicing. The million lights shone on a jeweled turban and striped carlat, on dark eyes sparkling over filmy veils, on shining palanquins borne on the shoulders of huge ebony-skinned slaves. 
All that splendor centered in the Hippodrome, where in lavish pageants the horsemen of Turkestan and Tartary competed in breathtaking races with the riders of Egypt and Arabia, where warriors in glittering mails spilled one another's blood on the sands, where swordsmen were matched against wild beasts and lions were pitted against tigers from Bengal and boars from northern forests. One might have dreamed the imperial pageantry of Rome revived in eastern garb. On a throne set upon his lapis lazuli pillars, Suleiman reclined, gazing on the splendors as purple-toged Caesars had gazed before him. About him bowed his viziers and officers and the ambassadors from foreign courts, Venice, Persia, India, the Khanates of Tartary. They came, including the Venetians, to congratulate him on his victory over the Austrians, for this grand fate was in celebration of that victory, as set forth in a manifesto under the Sultan's hand, which stated, in part, that the Austrians having made submission and sued for pardon on their knees, and the German realms being so distant from the Ottoman Empire, the faithful would not trouble to clean out the fortress, Vienna or purify, improve, and put it in repair. Therefore, the Sultan had accepted the submission of the contemptible Germans, and left them in possession of their paltry fortress. Suleiman was blinding the eyes of the world with the blaze of his wealth and glory, and striving to make himself believe that he had actually accomplished all he had intended. He had not been beaten on the field of open battle. He had put his puppet on the Hungarian throne, he had devastated Austria. The markets of Stambul and Asia were full of Christian slaves. With this knowledge, he soothed his vanity, ignoring the fact that 30,000 of his subjects rotted before Vienna, and that his dreams of European conquest had been shattered. Behind the throne shone the spoils of war. Silken and velvet pavilions wrested from the Persians, the Arabs, the Egyptian Mamluks. Costly tapestries, heavy with gold embroidery. At his feet were heaped the gifts and tributes of subject and allied princes. There were vests of Venetian velvet, gold and goblets crusted with jewels from the courts of the Grand Mogul, ermine-lined caftans from Ezeraum, carven jade from Carthay, silver Persian helmets with horsehair plumes, turban cloths cunningly sewn with gems, from Egypt curved Damascus blades of watered steel, Matchlocks from Campbell worked richly in chased silver, breastplates and shields of Indian steel, rare furs from Mongolia. The throne was flanked on either hand by a long rank of youthful slaves made fast by golden collars to a single long silver chain. One file was composed of young Greek and Hungarian boys, the other of girls, all clad only in plumed headpieces and jeweled ornaments intended to emphasize their nudity. Eunuchs in flowing robes, their rotund bellies banded by cloth of gold sashes, knelt and offered the royal guests sherbets in gemmed goblets, cooled with snow from the mountains of Asia Minor. The torches danced and flickered to the roars of the multitudes. Around the courses swept the horses, foam flying from their bits. Wooden castles reeled and went up in flames as the Janissaries clashed in mock warfare. Officers passed among the shouting people, tossing showers of copper and silver coins amongst them. 
None hungered or thirsted in Stamboul that night except the miserable Kafar captives. The minds of the foreign envoys were numbed by the bursting sea of splendour, the thunder of imperial magnificence. About the vast arena stalked trained elephants, almost covered with housings of gold-worked leather, and from the jeweled towers on their backs, fanfares of trumpets vied with the roar of the throngs and the bellow of lions. The tears of the Hippodrome were a sea of faces, all turning towards the jeweled figure on the shining throne, while the thousands of tongues wildly thundered his acclaim. As he impressed the Venetian envoys, Suleiman knew he impressed the world. In the blaze of his magnificence, men would forget that a handful of desperate kafars behind rotting walls had closed his road to empire. Suleiman accepted a goblet of the forbidden wine and spoke aside to the Grand Vizier, who stepped forth and lifted his arms. O guests of my master, the Padishah forgets not the humblest in the hour of rejoicing. To the officers who led his hosts against the infidels, he has made rare gifts. Now he gives 240,000 ducats to be distributed amongst the common soldiers, and likewise, to each janissary, he gifts a thousand aspers. In the midst of the roar that went up, a eunuch knelt before the Grand Vizier, holding up a large, round package, carefully bound and sealed. A folded piece of parchment, held shut by a red seal, accompanied it. The attention of the sultan was attracted. O friend, what hast thou there? The rider of the Adrianopole post delivered it, O lion of Islam. Apparently it is a gift of some sort from the Austrian dogs. Infidel riders, I understand, gave it to the hands of the border guard with instructions to send it straightway to Stamboul. Open it, directed Suleiman, his interest roused. The eunuch salaamed to the floor, then began breaking the seals of the package. A scholarly slave opened the accompanying note and read the contents, written in a bold yet feminine hand. To the soldan Suleiman and his vizier Ibrahim, and to the hussy Roxalana, we who sign our names below send a gift in token of our immeasurable fondness and kind affection. Sonia of Rogatino and Gottfried von Kambach. Suleiman, who had started up at the name of his favourite, his features suddenly darkening with wrath, gave a choking cry, which was echoed by Ibrahim. The eunuch had tossed the seals of the bale, disclosing what lay within. A pungent scent of herbs and preservative spices filled the air, and the object, slipping from the horrified eunuch's hands, tumbled among the heaps of presents at Suleiman's feet, offering a ghastly contrast to the gems, gold, and velvet bales. The sultan stared down at it, and in that instant his shimmering pretense of triumph slipped from him. His glory turned to tinsel and dust. Ibrahim tore at his beard with a gurgling, strangling sound, purple with rage. At the sultan's feet, the features frozen in a death mask of horror, lay the severed head of Mikhail Oglu, vulture of the Grand Turk. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Trish. 
Hi, I'm Connor. Hi, I'm Alex. Hi, I'm Chris. And we're going to talk about The Shadow of the Vulture, a short story by Robert E. Howard, first published in the Magic Carpet magazine, January 1934. Narrated for us by Connor. Thank you very much, Connor. Um, no problem. I, is this one pub- Canadian public domain or U.S.? I don't remember which one I told you it was. One or the other. It's in some public domain. <laughs> yeah, and Australian, Australian public domain as well, so... You're safe. <laughs> um, I'd never, right, yeah. I've never read it before. There's, you know, I've read a lot of Lovecraft, but I think the output of Lovecraft must have been about a quarter of what Robert E. Mm. Howard's output is. A- am I crazy to think that? If you just go by published stories, maybe. Yeah. Well, even like the don't count the letters. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. You're right. You're. Yeah. He was busy writing letters, especially to Howard. <laughs> Mm. Um, but even, even the poetry and they both did poetry seems like, you know, like he's got one book of poetry, Robert E. Howard's got a bunch of poems. I just think his output was way higher. He was really trying to make a living at this job. I think Howard considered it much more of like a a day job. Like this is what he did to make his money. Yep. And he wanted it to be his job. And he just cranked out the stories where I think Lovecraft was much more. Oh, I feel like writing something today. What can I? Yes, I, mm. I need to go on vacation, and uh, and then I'll write letters to my friends every five minutes, and then I'll write a story in slightly inspired by that vacation. And it, yeah, he was not super into the marketing. Um, yeah. But that, I just think that means I I've got so many more rich stories to read, like this one. I'd never read it before. Um, it's pretty amazing. I was- I was pretty shocked that um, I'd never heard of it either. Um, like when you hear uh, Robert Howard talk about his own output, he seems like he's really, um, he's always like uh, worried, right, about how he's doing financially. And mm-hmm. it gives you the impression that he wasn't writing that much. But then when you do look at just the sheer amount um, of like novelettes and stuff like that, it is pretty shocking. It is shocking. Actually Especially, I mean, a lot of people don't remember the, um, like, detective stories sure. and these historical stories. I wasn't familiar with at all. Fight stories. So, um, yeah, he, those are a lot of never read any of them. Sailor stories. Mm. He's, he's got comedies. He's, he's writing in every genre out there. He, he has some westerns, right? And Yeah, and the, mm-hmm. the thing with, with Howard that I, and, you know, this, this comes to personal taste, but uh, I I feel like fantasy actually is, in my mind, like his weakest genre. Like, I feel like he knocks it out of the park on all the rest of them. And his fantasy stories, I enjoy some of them I like a whole lot. Some of them I'm like, oh, okay, that was okay. Like, it's rare that there's a historical adventure that he does or a comedy western or a fight story that I'm not just like absolutely salivating over every you know remaining sentence i um, i hate to agree with you because you know i didn't come to howard through any of that stuff i came through you know conan everybody comes to or red sonia indirectly or or actually uh, also through um you know his lovecraftian output which is Huge. It's probably mm-hmm. a, about a quarter of Lovecraft's Lovecraftian <laughs> output, right? As, in terms of word count, he's got uh, at least 
six stories that are Lovecraftian stories, right? Like straight mm-hmm. up the black stone and things. The thing I, on the roof. The thing. Oh, so many, and they're good. They're like he's 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 doing what Lovecraft does, and he even has the characters faint. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. he knows what he's doing. Okay. Um, but uh, honestly, I, I started this one a few times, and I'm like, oh boy, he really doesn't want to get to the action, does he? Right. <laughs> And yeah. so what I was thinking, like, why, why is that? And he doesn't, if you read his Conan stuff, it's the same way. He usually doesn't start with Conan riding into the room, right? It's like, uh, that does happen. Um, but usually there's some setup, some guy, mm-hmm. you know, some lady, and then some dude turns a corner and like, there he is, right? Finally. Okay. Um, but what I was thinking, why is it that this other stuff, the non-Conan, non, you know, Solomon Kane stuff doesn't grab us in the same way. I think it's because we're all stupid and lazy. <laughs> because mm. I'd never heard of, like, the Siege... Like, if I had heard of the Siege of Vienna, I didn't know which one it was talking about. And so he's training us up in that first chapter, right? He's giving us the impression. And then when we get to the end, the final chapter, it's a mirror of the first chapter. Hmm. Right? Yeah, so mm-hmm. it is. And and that that the 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 amount of historical work he has to do is incredible, right? He has to like he's done tons of research for this. Obviously, he's read at least a book, right? Mm. He paid a ton of attention to tiny little details and he's doing his best to get, you know, the clothes right and the names of the like for example, there's a dude mentioned uh, Milos Oblik, Oblik, he's a Serbian knight who uh, assassinated uh, a previous sultan. Like he's mm. just casually <laughs> dropped in the beginning of the bo- in the beginning of the story. Um, he's a real guy. That's a real incident, sort of. It, the assassination happened, and the attribution to this guy was happening at that time. So, like, why does he put that in there? Because he thinks it's awesome. And it adds richness. And then if you get to the end of the story and you start thinking about what this is, what this whole story is, it's, um, you know, it's a pretty, it's like a two week siege of the city of Vienna, the Ottoman Empire getting an uppity to take slaves. And he actually throws in some of the analysis as what, what the motivation of Suleiman the Magnificent was. In the story, like it was actually not he wanted to conquer the city; rather, it was just a slave, slaving ex- uh, expedition, right? And oh yeah, if you happen to capture the city, that's great too. But it, it comes away with a victory, mm. and then he throws in this this uh, Red Sonia character who you know immediately takes over the story, mm-hmm. and then we're like, what what, 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 what happened? This guy's crying. <laughs> Our Conan equivalent is crying, um, and she's like, "Get off! Get off! And let's go to the bar and have some ale." And like, so what? What I'm saying is, like, at the end of the story, we're actually be- we are set up, and we don't even know this, and most of us do, right? I didn't know this. We're set up for actually World War One. Like a lot of the 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 guy who ends up uh, doing taking over the Ottoman Empire. Uh, oh, sorry, the uh, Hungar. Austro-Hungarian Empire is has the same name as the guy who's running the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, at the time of World War One starting, and a Serbian's involved there too. 
So he's actually like filling in history for us. He's making history really interesting through fiction. Mm. That's a, 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 if you could get into the school market somehow, he would make tons of money. Um, <laughs> uh, they don't teach this stuff in school, right? Nobody gets taught this stuff in school. But I'd totally read this in school. I mean, well, I went I, to a small Catholic school. They talk. They talk a lot about the Siege of Vienna. Do they? Oh yes, of course, uh, Catholic, <laughs> right? Because it's it's a war of Christian against Muslim. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Hmm. Yeah, no, it never came up in my my schooling. We just <laughs> get World War One and you know Saskatchewan and stuff like that. <laughs> okay, so I talked for a bit. Anybody got some opinions or ideas about this? This is one of my favorite stories for years. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been trying to get you to read it for a while, Jesse. I've brought it up several times. And <laughs> I thought it was Blue Flame of Vengeance was your favorite. Also Blue Flame of Vengeance. <laughs> you can have more than one favorite. It's fine. <laughs> well, I like it's, it. She, uh, thank you. She comes out of nowhere. right? Like it's, she does. It's a Godfrey story until Sonya shows up. Yep. And Howard makes no bones about her. And it, it feels like he kind of came up with it by accident and she just took over the story mm-hmm. and no one is complaining because she's fantastic. That's right. <laughs> yeah. She's the side, the, I mean, we have a, um, a girl who's the, uh, love interest at the beginning. She gets an arrow in her, right? Or yeah, sta- stabbed, stabbed right. anyways in the heart. And so, well, now we've got him, uh, motivated for some vengeance. Um, and then a new lady shows up and they're like, don't even bother with her. She's not, she's not into you. And then she she literally <laughs> saves him from uh from the moat, right? She's the yeah, hero of the like story. Three times in he this saves story. him several times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he never saves her in this story either. That's right. At no point is she rescued. <laughs> she comes and saves his butt three times. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Mm. And they're both, you know, and Red Sonja take, you know, uh, clearly does take over the story. But Godfrey's one of my favorite uh, Howard characters as well, and that's, that's hard because man, he makes some good characters. Yep. Uh, but I think I, you know, his best ones are the ones that have some kind of flaw, and his is that he's just a big drunk dummy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and I and I and that that makes him really charming, and it also sort of offsets the fact that he is basically this unstoppable Hercules. Uh, and I think that, you know, having that kind of balance makes for a really rich and fun character. This guy who can, you know, kill a hundred men, you know, on the, on the, on the wall, but also, you know, will get tricked into whatever at the easiest thing or Mm -hmm. fall into a moat or, uh, pass out and get robbed or whatever, you know, is likely to happen to him. Um, just because it, I, 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 I really gravitate towards characters that are hyper competent in one arena while being very incompetent in others. And I think that he <laughs> uh, really sums that up in a really nice way. It, it's it so, makes it, go for it. Oh, well, it makes it interesting. Cause as um, Sonia says, he needs somebody to take care of him. Cause he is kind of a big dumb. <laughs> oaf. <laughs> um, and, and so their dynamic works really well because they are like mutually, uh, beneficial to each other or um they can work Are together they, well <laughs> well yeah. she they're on the same team maybe no. not right i mean she can't she can't fight the entire ottoman empire by herself right that those all those janissaries it's a, a few too many <laughs> but but uh, you know so she it's she what she calls them the line is dog brother mm-hmm. yeah 
Um, now that word dog, it's all over this story. I, I mean, this is a, a word that you see in a lot of Howard stuff. Uh, all the animals imagery. I mean, it's sort of a sick, like, uh, there's a guy named, uh, John Sladek who, who makes fun of other authors by, well, he did made fun of other authors by parodying their writing, you know, and he did Philip K. Dick, uh, solar shoes, solar shoe salesman, you know, <laughs> just very funny <laughs> short story that makes fun. It, it, Robert E. Howard sets himself up for this. Like, you know, everybody's pantherish. That guy's got a hawk nose. This, this guy's, you know, he's got literally, he's got condor wings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, when I read, I read the comic, I'm like, yeah, why would he have that? That's ridiculous. Um, when I read the story, I'm like, holy cow, he actually has them. <laughs> and I'm mm. like, I See, bet this I, is real. <laughs> in, in my mind, well, and uh, you know, and I, uh, uh, that, that stage of his, sort of like that, that, that 1500s, uh, era is one that I don't give a whole lot of attention to. And so I don't really know the iconography of, of the things, but I'm like, are the are the vulture wings on his helmet? Are they like those Polish knights where they have the big mm-hmm. rod with the wings on them that you know, so that when they're riding, they look like terrifying angels? Like I'm really curious as mm-hmm. to what what Howard's meaning of it is, and I think it's really fun that it was kind of interpreted in the comic adaptation as being like Victoria's Secret wings. Yeah. Um, yeah, the text says the wide vulture wings made fast to the shoulders yep. of his gilded chainmail hauberk. So oh, man. they're literally they're literally yeah, described. I, I always picture him on his helmet because nope. of that. Like I just pictured these giant vulture wings. Wow. Man, that's Tolkien. The winged helmet. <laughs> it's I have a bit of a theory oh, about go for it. these wings. This is my little conspiracy. Oh, not conspiracy. My theory. So, like, um, I know that uh, like Howard said that he had difficulty with historical stories because he was trying to wrangle the history mm-hmm. into a, a story format, right? And I think in this story and probably other ones as well, what he's what he does is he reads all this history. And he finds the coolest kind of things. Like he thinks um, mm-hmm. Roxolana. He thinks she's really cool, obviously. Yep. Right? But um, he can't really put her in the action because... She's a historical she's, she figure. In. Yeah, but he likes the Siege of Vienna. He likes Roxolana. What can he do? Well, why don't we give Roxolana a sister who looks exactly like her and is kind of the <laughs> same, and then we can put her in Vienna, right? <laughs> so he can kind of have that aspect. But also, my theory with these vulture wings um, is, um, like you said, uh, Chris, right? Was yes. It Chris yeah. mentioned that? Yeah. Um, the Polish hussars, um, mm-hmm. who are actual historical uh, cavalry, who um, had those um, wings attached to uh, their... Armor, just in the same way. Let me see what I can. Um, it does exist. I know. It must have been yeah. in a podcast, Hardcore History or something. I heard about that, and I was like, "Wow!" And you, can, I think there are illustrations showing it. For sure, I'll. Uh, I just sent you the a link to the Wikipedia article, and you can see how. Yep. What they look like. Sixteenth um, so, century. There you go. Yeah, but what's uh, very interesting, I thought, was. I actually confused um, the siege in this story. At first, I thought it was the Battle of Vienna. Mm-hmm. So this is this story is about the siege of Vienna, but there was also like a hundred years later the Battle of Vienna, which was the same thing. Turkish forces are trying to invade Vienna to get into Europe. Yep. Um, 
And the Polish hussars had a really crucial role in repelling uh, the Turks in that battle. They kind of rode in in a cavalry charge, I think, and uh, routed the Turkish forces. It was very Riders of Rohan. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It was exactly mm-hmm. like that. So I wonder whether Robert have- was reading all this history about I- I'm sure. Vienna. And he saw them and he's like, oh, man. Guys, cavalry with wings on their armor. Too cool not to include. Well, <laughs> and I, I want to write about the siege, not the battle of Vienna. Different history. But I want Suleiman the Magnificent there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, maybe we can include another character who has wings on his armor. <laughs> and maybe that's where it came from. Because I couldn't find anything else about... Mikhail no, I, I think I think that it's... To, I mean, the other thing to remember is like... It's like a... It, I used to do this for fun is you just make up like you could do make a bot, you know, like a Twitter bot that does Doctor Who episode titles. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the stones of blood. Right. So you just add blood and the shadow. Right. And Robert E. Howard has like uh, one of those. You could do that for Robert E. Howard stories, because if you t- if you go to ISFDB, Internet Science Fiction Database, and look at his list of stories written and published. Um, and you type in shadow, it's like, there's seven of them. <laughs> and then the shadow of, there's like six of them. Right? And like, wow, the shadow over, right? If that's, uh, makes you think of the Lovecraft story, but uh, the color crimson, scarlet, red, right? He's super easy to predict, like kind of what visuals he wants to throw in. And he's got the animals, right? So we've got a a guy who's literally a vulture, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and the vultures. What do they do? They pick over the bones of the of the battle, right? And we we actually start with a backstory uh, with our our uh, dumb German hero having uh, personally scarred the emperor, right? And then mm-hmm. uh, he leaves with a bag of gold, which is interesting. And then at the end, they come back with a chest full of uh, head, right? And the guy who's dispatched to go get the guy with, who gave him the scar is, uh, you know, makes that promise, which is, I if if uh, I don't come back with his head and get the three times worth of gold for it, I will allow my head to come back. Right. So if I bring you not his head, I give him leave to send you mine. Right. And that promise is fulfilled, even though even though we uh, there's no way for the characters who send the head back to know that. (laughs) We as the we as the readers know it, that beautiful symmetry that he's managed to create within this. What I increasingly think is just complete historical fiction. Right. It's. It's like uh, any old World War II movie that fits the facts. Um, you know, you get some unit and you just talk about a particular tank or like, you know, whatever, Fury or whatever. As long as it, it's not a Quentin Tarantino World War II, it's legit. <laughs> it's historical mm-hmm. fiction. And that's what we have here. We have a story within a particular scenario. Um, but the details all around the actual events are as accurate as he could make them. I think, because mm-hmm. everything I looked up looked look good. Uh, even the words that I was like, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't, I think he got the word wrong. Nope, he got it right. My, my assumption of what that word meant is incorrect. 
like the clothing items. I'm like, oh no, no, he's got the he's got the wrong thing. No, nope, he's right. I'm wrong. <laughs> oh wow, what a talent! What an amazing talent he was. I it probably wrote it in a weekend too, right? I, I know it's easy to reflect on sort of what what might have been things with Howard, but I think you know if he I, I'm I'm also in a really rural area with you know limited amount of historical stuff in my library mm-hmm. um and so i can e- easily envision how much uh struggle and how difficult it was for him to uh find the material that he wanted to use for his historical fiction like he loved you know he talked about how he loved doing historical fiction but that he uh just the the research it was as much the finding the research stuff as it was actually doing the research was so much of a struggle mm-hmm. that uh he ended up sort of faking historical fiction through the through the fantasy stuff what's interesting um, is that it's you who's saying this because most of what i know that you do is the krogan adventures which are stories of historical fiction done made personal through a family line right mm-hmm which is pretty uh, pretty awesome. So how is that how you do it? You go to the local library or you're just on the internet now? I I do it mostly on the internet now. When I lived in Atlanta and when I lived in Nashville, I was at the library all the time and I was at the college libraries and things like that. And now just the the amount of books. I mean like I I love my public library, but I love it more for my kid. Like right, it does right. not necessarily have the 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 type of things that I have. It's just, it's very small. Um, and so, you know, now I can use, uh, you know, I still rely heavily on books, but it's usually a find what type of books I need by doing research on the internet or looking mm-hmm. at academic journals or things like that, and then being able to get my mitts on them. But to, to only have, you know, like a couple of books available to you at any given point, uh, is, you know, really tricky, uh, from the, standpoint of wanting to to do that research and i think that you and as a result of that i think there are some howard scholars that there, there might be an essay about it in the the sword woman book uh that came mm-hmm. out in the last two years here. or whatever um where it specifically cites books that he directly references because he has so few resources that is available at his disposal that you can read you know different sections and be like oh well this is the book where he got this this is the book where he got that this is the book where he got that. So he probably mm-hmm. had three books that he looked at, you know, and, and you can sort of reverse engineer his research as a result of what he ends up putting in the stories. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, I want to, I, I want to talk, uh, I, I, I sort of touched on this, but I want to talk about the animals. I know <laughs> I mentioned it, the vulture we've got, um, we've got all the dog mentions near the beginning. Then there's the dog brother mention. Um, I I uh I read the um Conan adaptation and it's faithful in some very important respects um and it's you know it's also got some magic in it which it doesn't need but has because sword and sorcery right you have to have the sorcery um but the, almost all the best parts are not the sword and sorcery editions there's those actually hurt the story in my view all the best parts are are extrapolations or adaptations of actual text and words taken out of the story and put into, you know, translated. So the most important one of those is when 
in that in the adaptation when Conan is trussed up and about to be uh uh taken kidnapped off to uh Yezdegerd or whoever's the equivalent in that adaptation, Conan bursts uh not Conan, Red Sonia bursts through the door and says, Ha, look at all you dogs, right? And uh the 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 dog has uh, the cur has pops right because more guys show up or something so there's this language that of the dogs and all that stuff is it's fun but one of the subtle sh- things that they i guess it's roy thomas did is show how C- conan not our german he- hero but conan feels when this woman is basically as good as him at doing what she's doing at what he's doing or maybe better and she doesn't think he's awesome and attractive. <laughs> and mm. he, he goes outside, uh, walking away, and he sees a dog in the street, and he, it barks at him, and he says, Shut up! <laughs> and tries to kick it. <laughs> and then a few panels go by. He goes to talk to uh, the uh, princess or whatever. And uh, he's outside again, and he sees that dog barking at him again, and he's like, ah, he's chasing after it, right? Show, not tell. Well, we are essentially experiencing that position of Conan uh, through our Germanic dumb guy, because we're set up to be follow him. So we become him. Then this lady shows us up, and we're all like, hey, but she's pretty awesome. And then if you look at what actually happened in the Conan comics, this is her first appearance, right? Uh, in tw- Conan Barbarian 23, it's an adaptation of the only story in which she, she exists. Their relationship, the Conan Red Sonja relationship, which is huge, right? There's a Red Sonja movie, um, which is terrible, but <laughs> also interesting. But more importantly, their relationship in comics is huge and long and it goes over 50 years, right? There's a Red Comic, Red Sonja comic in the comic book store right now. That relationship is entirely from the relationship in this story. And it's a wonderful dynamic because they're not quite equals, but they're as close as possible. And their dynamic between them is terrific. It's just a different dynamic than you get with Valeria or with Belit or, you know, all the uh, Yasminas and, you know, all the ladies who don't pick up swords in Conan stories. And, uh, it's why, like, I, I just picked up the latest Conan comic yesterday, um, you know, and it's written by Jim Zub, who I'm told is a fine writer. Um, he's okay. I've read some stuff of his that's okay. But it's not based on a Robert E. Howard story, and so it just doesn't zing. It doesn't mm. zing at all. There's no, there's no zing there in the slightest. These are philosophical stories about how to be. And that's not what we're getting when we, we have, uh, written by somebody else. I, and I'm like, that's why I read the, I, I, I thought it was all Roy Thomas. It's not. It's, that's Roy Thomas was adapting stuff all the time. And all these freely adapted comics are the ones that zing because he's still <laughs> lifting the actual words from the, the text and the scenes from the text. And they just, and- they fly. And and this one, th- this particular story, I think lends itself so well in in that comic adaptation. You know, by 
Uh, now, would I like to see more like siege battle? Yeah, of course. It's like one yep. panel in the comic. Yep. Um, but the you know the the ending where it it ends the same way. You it got, sure does. You know, basically a cutaway before the fight, and then you get the the consequence uh, of the fight. And it's you know it's very it's very literary. It's very you know high. Com- considering you know sort of the low that that comics usually lend itself to especially in that period when it comes to well show the 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 action show that this thing and i i think with howard and the adaptation there's a lot of that in a lot of his stories and it's kind of like elmore leonard like i think that people oh, yeah. uh when you see adaptations of elmore leonard there are people who kind of get it and people who don't and the people mm. who get it you know, like like with Justified or Jackie Brown or things like that, are the ones who lean into the stuff that you don't find anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think with Howard, the best adaptation is is that same thing. And I think that a lot of times people tend to, when they're adapting Howard or uh, you know taking Conan and doing something with it, are leaning more into the the surface things that anybody yep. might do, and not focusing on the fact that oh well, there's you know, long sections that don't feature the main character that give you a sense of place and time, or there is this really weird guy, or these characters have these specific flaws that make them very human. And I think that, that a lot of times we tend to lose those in the, you know, Conan as a franchise. Yep. I, I I was talking about that issue of um, Conan that I was reading and I'm reading it. I'm like, Oh, this is um, the brotherhood without banners in Kaite, right? You know, uh, and I like the Brotherhood Without Banners in George R.R. R. Martin's thing. Um, and that's cool. Uh, and it has uh, a flaming sword. <laughs> and, um, and it also has gunpowder. And I'm like, and when you zoom in on the, uh, the magic that it's sword and sorcery, so you have to have magic that the, the Chinese witch uses, um, it's got, uh, the letters are, um, runes, Nordic runes. And I'm like, yeah, you've made a mistake. You've made a huge mistake because you didn't base it on a Rory Howard thing. He always did something like, I, I can imagine even doing his co- comedies as uh, Conan's if you're one at doing adaptations. But you can't just like go away from the source because the source is the character. The, yeah, I think, almost nobody has this idea in their head when they do Conan. And that's one of those things that sort of, that, 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 you know, why I bring the corollary with Leonard is that, you know, if you're, uh, have, have you watched Justified? Of course. Yes. Wonderful. Okay. So, so just, you know, they only have the rights to the, the Raylan Gibbon stories, but those writers just, they, they picked, stuff from every Leonard book they could, you know, mm-hmm. old West stories, you know, uh, Miami stories, just whatever, whatever they felt, felt right. They just stuck it in there. And I think you could do that with yep. Conan things. You could take a, you know, a Breckenridge Elkins plot yes. and work it into <laughs> Conan. You could take a sailor, Steve Costigan story and work it into Conan. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it would, it, and I think that, and, and, you know, shadow of a vulture is a really good example of how that kind of thing can be done and can yield great results. And I haven't read enough Conan comics to know if folks are doing that, but I, I feel no. like if not, that's a great opportunity to, to take some of these other really fun elements that feel very 
powered and you can can feel that and just sort of repurpose them within that fantasy milieu. They have well, not Elf, they have not Elf, done that. The camp did that all the time with the 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 Conan's novels back in the 70s. Yeah, freely yeah. adapted, right? Yeah, a ton of Howard stories. He's like, "Man, this is a Conan story now." He That's great. I, I love that. Well, I knew I knew that I knew that that he had done that with other fantasy stories. I didn't know if he had pulled from the other genre stories as well. I, I just several I, of the the sort of Middle Eastern. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Afghanistan. Um, oh yeah, stories. those were those were great. And it feels like a lot now. And I I do not know enough about Howard's output to know what there are. Like most of his historicals. Uh, seemed to be sort of vaguely Middle Eastern or straddling that border mm-hmm. between East and West. And I think that's because they were published in Oriental Tales or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like that. And Magic Carpet, um, which are the same magazine, really. Yeah. And so there's, you know, there, there's occasionally like a Crusader story, but it's usually within the context of. It's in the Orient, which is yeah. anywhere east of Austria. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, his uh, his output is incredible, right? And and then there's all the stuff that he couldn't sell, that you know comes out in 19, like Sword Woman. I've not read that, um, but that's uh, it's first published in like 1975, yeah. right? It's and 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 Sword Woman. You know, I, I you hear a lot of corollaries between uh, Dark Agnes and and mm-hmm. Red Sonia because Dark Agnes is also a hyper competent sword swinging redheaded fire lady. from a small town um, yep but yeah but it's 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 very much more in a sort of year one style type of thing it's like her going from a peasant who's about to be forced to be married against her will at like age 15 to so you know to uh, eventually you know this this uh highly prized assassin person and that's all uh, shoehorned horror that's all story that's all yeah. shoehorned into red sonya with a jay's story that's how that's how it feels like i mean it feels very much like a a thing that could be easily used as as red sonya origin it, it was yeah it's it's and that's why red sonya like I, I i didn't i was not i was barely alive when conan started right in comics but in the 80s i was buying anything Robert E. Howard related because this this character just somehow sings and then there's this other one. Oh, it's great too. And I even bought the, you know, Conan the King because that was all adaptations of the two King stories and a few, you know, culls translated. Oh, and then there's this cull character, right? I didn't know I thought it was I thought it was character. It's not. It's the author. <laughs> it's the author mm. who is talented, right? Not the character that's dynamic. Just seeing, like, uh, I'd love to see a great piece of Conan art. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure you know Chris, who Dan Panosian is. Yeah. Um, I see him uh, tweet his drink and draw stuff, and I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are just so good. Right? And I love the the images that they put together. But it's just an image. So if you, if you go in uh, with the idea that a character is an image, it doesn't give you their philosophy and why we love them. Right, but when I see the image, I I have all this backstory of, of philosophy behind it, and that's why all the you know the knockoffs of Conan, like Thongor and all that stuff, they just don't they don't work. <laughs> they don't work. They yeah, Kazar has a story. He's a he's fine. He's but he's he's still kind of like a knockoff Tarzan. Yeah. Right, and so what's so cool is 
here in this story, we've got the creation of a dynamic that I, I didn't know that, that the Sonya Conan dynamic came out of, right out of this story. I assumed that, I guess I just assumed that it was natural, <laughs> but no, it was like, let's copy out the text, um, reduce it down. We have to change things here and there. You know, the story starts differently in the comic book, but, um, the, 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 the German dumb guy viewpoint character is us a witnessing this amazing set piece, right? He's, he's, he's played for comic relief almost, right? The f- <laughs> very first time we see him uh, after he's gotten his bag of gold is, you know, he's drunk <laughs> and waving away the host. Uh, oh, it's you girl. Okay. You have shapely legs. Um, and she's like, the place is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what? <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, that, the, and then she dies. And then she dies. Right. Uh, giving us the, uh, I was also really yep. struck by the second time it mentions him getting drunk is not just because he has a weakness for drink, but because a lot of able-bodied men are getting drafted to dig ditches and do other defense grunt work. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want any part of that. So he gets himself so drunk that, you know, they're not going to try to make him help build a wall or whatever. <laughs> Yep. I, in fact, the descriptions, like setting the characters aside, um, and uh, that's hard to do, right? But uh, this, the setup opening chapter, which is, it, I'm like, who's this guy? I don't know. Oh, we got the main character yet? No, don't, not, no, we're not there yet. Um, and then the description of what the city looks like, you know, with all these houses being demolished to be piled up to reinforce a wall. And then, mm-hmm. right. It's, it's fabulous. And then when when the final chapter comes and we get the description of the city of Istanbul again, right? It's a mirror to the first one. I mean, I, I almost, I didn't check, but it feels like there could be identical sentences in there in some cases. Um, but we get this vision of the city so brightly lit that it, it doesn't know night, right? And the tribes mm-hmm. looking out... Uh, you know, over its walls, um, just waiting to move in, right? And so that mirroring the first city that's on fire. It's right. amazing. That's great, yeah. It's amazing. He's a, just a, he's an amazing writer. And it, it has to be, like, built in, like, he must have been born with it, right? Because <laughs> how else do you get trained up to be that great? I don't, it's so young. He's, he's younger, he was younger than me. Uh, he's younger than me, right? When he dies, way younger. In fact, was he thirty six? I think he was like thirty five, something 30, like that. Uh, super young. Let's see, nineteen oh six to nineteen thirty six. So only thirty years old when he died. Wow. Connor, you still have time. <laughs> but yeah, I got, I got about three years until I guess I'll be that age. <laughs> you better, so. you better get um, running right. Get, get catch up to speed if you're going to catch up to yeah. Robert E. Howard. Jesus. Yeah, I've got a lot of writing to do if I want to <laughs> get to the thing. He does have a very natural eye. Oh, so for, beautiful. I think good set pieces um, and that kind of, like you said, there's a lot of mirroring in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, in a really, like, it's a really um, pleasant, um, or I don't know, pleasing way where it starts out at one point and it comes back. And I like the uh, descriptions of Istanbul in the um, 
at the end, I was kind of really shocked because I felt like, all right, we've had the resolution of Mikhail Oglu and mm-hmm. Gottfried, right? We know we pretty much know what happened. But then he spends a good maybe even two or three pages just describing all the opulence that's happening. It's the whole chapter, right? All of chapter seven is just, look how awesome. On your narration, it's it's like ten straight minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's, um, at first I was kind of like, oh, is, uh, it feels a bit of a left turn, but you really settle into it and it's enjoyable just seeing him describe this city, um, and what's going on and all the crazy, stuff that this inc- insanely rich Sultan can put on at his leisure just to uh, make himself feel better. And <laughs> he's, he's also hinting the whole time that he's clearly trying to make himself feel better. It's like, I didn't oh, lose. Sure. Like, Look how <laughs> yeah. rich I am. Yeah. yeah. Propaganda. It, it, it is. But like the richness of the, like I, I think of a story like beyond the black river, right? Which is a Conan story. Uh, which is sort of an analogy. I, I thought it was, you know, European backstory before I dug into it, but no, no, it's, it's an analogy. Like I thought it was Roman or something like, it's an analogy for like Mm. the frontier of the, of Texas, right? Um, Indians and get Comanches and then they're Mexicans and right. Like it's, it's, uh, he's, he's turned the climate different, but he's, he's working a historical fiction vein. But it's still, it's kind of loose. Like, I don't really know what Aquilonia is all about. I know there's a, you know, we got a bunch of Aquilonian stuff, but I don't really understand. It's not viscerally understood by me, right? What is visceral is this history. Because it's so rich with reality that it stretches forward to the present, right? With all the places and place names and politics um and it stretches back in history for like what's going on here like where we are in history it's you know after charlemagne and it's before world war one and it's doing all this and then we've got the janissaries right which is like oh yeah it's a child of it's a it's a a hundred thousand child slaves uh brainwashed into becoming the elite fighters for a a uh, reverse crusade. <laughs> like, mm. wow, that's impressive. And like, that was a real thing. Whereas when you're reading, reading, uh, you know, all these place names in the Hyborian age, like, uh, you know, oh, turns out Shem is probably supposed to be like, uh, Judea. Like, oh, well, that's a big surprise. I didn't know that. Uh, but it doesn't really come up in the story very much, right? Um, because we don't visit it. But, you know, Ophir, is that supposed to be Greece? No, literally, Greece can show up in a story, one of these <laughs> historical fiction stories, and it's just so much richer. So, it's... One of, oh, sorry. No, I'm just saying, like, it, it's almost like we need to be trained to read Robert E. Howard's other stuff. Well, this one, I think one of the things that's really neat is, is, you know, you talk about the familiarity of the place names and things like that, but, um, it's, it's sometimes hard for me to read historical fiction unless I have seen a film sort of vaguely set in that area so that I have some visual iconography to use as context. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is one in which I had none of that. And yet I was able to read it and 
and I felt like I could envision it without ever having that. Like this isn't a, a mm-hmm. period in history that's no, frequently it's, dramatized. It's it's, um, it's a blank for for me, and I'm I consider myself you know a big fan of history, and it's like I am I, I I heard of the siege of Vienna, but I like I couldn't tell you when it happened, right? Yeah. But I don't and know it turns out there's two of them. Time, but yeah, and, but they, you can you can like uh, mentioning the you know demolishing the houses and using them to patch the walls. Like you can picture that. You know you yes. can picture that. Yep. Talking about the rusty mail, the different you know the the helmets and the things like that. All of it is is done in a way that you can envision it without having that visual context. And that is that is really rare in in historical fiction. And yep. and that you know that's it's my favorite genre. I read it a lot. And it's, you know, Howard does it better than just about anybody. And he and did it in, an, in 90 minutes. Yeah. How the hell does, how do you, like most people today, they go down to read the historical fiction. They got a big whopping book. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking James Michener's Hawaii or something. That's you know, probably not yeah. James Michener. Or Shogun, <laughs> or, you know, like big whopping book. It's like endless page after page, you know, 40 hour book, right? Or, you know, Hawaii is yeah, yeah, just do, uh, Pearl Harbor, right? Big whopping book. And he does all of this in 90 minutes. Yeah, very few of his stories were split across multiple issues of a magazine. You know, mm-hmm. most of them were one issue of Weird Tales. Like, mm-hmm. Complete in this issue, here's your whole story. And it doesn't feel rushed either. Oh. It, it feels like it's got a good. It's pace. leisurely, in fact, at the end, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, part of that is the choices that he makes, of course. I was kind of struck by the resolution of the story right before the last part. I mean, you've got Conan tied up, and uh, uh, Sasanya rescues him, and they're talking to the merchant. She's going to have him send a message. Mikhail Ogluk gets the message, rides away from his column, and next scene, you know, is in Constantinople. Oh, and you you so- forgot the whisper. He she whispers in somebody's ear, right? Right. You're going to go I on mean, a mission for me. I'm going to give a you a lot horse. Of writers would have spent a lot more time on the intrigue part of that, but mm. you don't really need it. You you figure out what exactly what's going yep. on, and mm-hmm. you get to spend a lot more time with the with the other neat things that he spends his attention on. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's an interesting choice uh, that I was not expecting, you know, suddenly. His, his oh, the pacing story's is amazing. <laughs> but you have to, we, I feel like, I feel like I needed somebody to tell me. I, it's it's kind of like what I'm always saying. It's like, spoilers make me want to read the story. What people call mm-hmm. spoilers. It makes me want to say, like, okay, why, why is it that I should read this? You say, it's really good. That doesn't tell me anything. But if you say... Um, it's, it's got this amazing dynamic where the ca- main character suddenly shows up halfway through the book mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, sort of sweeps away everything else and w- we're wrapped by it. And then it's got this terrific mirror ending. I'm like, Oh, I, oh, you're, you're, you're selling me. You're selling me. And there's a guy with vulture wings. I'm like, okay. That sounds weird. <laughs> but, uh, the fact that it's, it's as historically, accurate as it it's as it seems to be uh, you know i'm not an expert on this but i did look up a lot of stuff and i'm like eh, he seems to have gotten it all right and we've got a lot more resources uh at our disposal now if, if you want to spend the time amazing and it's it's also really interesting to you know talking about him sort of looking through and finding things and being like oh i want to put that in a story you know he mentions 
the it, it, I think it would have been so easy to take the seventy year old uh, captain guy that he mentions, you know, throughout in passing, who's leading the the stuff, and make that guy the main character of the yep. story because that in itself mm-hmm. is you know really interesting. And the fact that he doesn't that he invents a character to that's that's really just aside from the fact that he's real good at swinging his big sword, like there's nothing particularly special about him. It's very much just sort of a, you are in this place thing, as opposed to what a lot of historical fiction does, which is to, um, especially historical action fiction, which is to put you in the, the driver's seat of the most impressive person in that, uh, in that scene. Kind of the Bernard Um, Cornwall move to make, make Richard Sharp always be the guy who won the critical battle and turned the tide every time. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is just a dude who, like, every once in a while gets drunk and stumbles in and happens to <laughs> Forrest Gump his way to victory. And I, I, there's something real... Uh, it, it's a really interesting decision uh, to, to do that. I was thinking about, uh, as you were talking there, I was thinking about how every time uh, we talk about Robert E. Howard stuff, we, we, we actually know this, but we never notice it. He's always lower class going up. Never, never top down. He never has the hero be some, you know, son of a prince or son of a king or son of the duke, mm-hmm. right? All of these people are nobodies. All the viewpoint characters are nobodies that are making their way in the world today and getting, getting everything they got, right? <laughs> these are people who, uh, you know, like Conan and, and Cull become kings. But they're not kings. They, they fight their way. To they're kings by their own hands. Seize hand. their throne. Right? It's very uh, manifest destiny. Is that the it, uh, it, yeah, American well, sort of idea? It's sort of. Uh, sort of. Because yeah. the difference is, is the, these are people like our, our um, I want to call them Sigurd. That's not his guy. That's not his name. Um, Godfrey. What's, Godfrey. Godfrey. Godfrey yeah. Right? He's. He, he doesn't seem to have a major ambition other than, you know, get some get booze, job. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, our Sonya character, she has a, uh, a, she's trying to get revenge, right? On her sister. On her sister. Uh, she hates. Which is interesting because we way, don't know that whole backstory. A, Go for it. It's a bit unfair because, um, Ruxolana was, uh, well, she was enslaved. Like she didn't, yeah. she didn't choose right. to be there. And it, and it says that in the story. It's yeah, not it, just like the she was dragged story. away. Yeah. From right, her dragged away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, Sonia like blames her for that. Um, I'm not sure what. It, it seems pretty unfair. Well, um, here here's my my guesstimation as to why that would be. And we don't get this in the story. Um, we may get it in. Uh, you know, I was saying how. Uh, Dark Agnes's backstory is shoehorned into Red Sonia's uh, with a J's backstory. Um, mm-hmm. When when people get enslaved, as we saw in the first uh, Conan movie, what happens? Mm-hmm. Your parents are murdered. Who by? By the guy you're sleeping with, right? He's the guy who's ultimately responsible. So this this is something like. This is what slaving is. You go into a place, you mm. kill all the adults, you take the kids, right? And then you sell them. And that's kind of what, what's going on there. And this actually, you know, works in, in both directions, Christians and, um, and Muslims, you know, they, they don't, they're not allowed to enslave their own. So you, you enslave others, right? 
and that so it's like mm. very profitable. So if if her sister uh was kidnapped and becomes the favored uh wife of of the people who killed her her parents, her family, her village, um that's an explanation that's not in the story but we could infer. Yeah, that does make sense actually. Why she would be incredibly angry about that, that her sister's sort of taken on this role. Yes, I think she's uh, forgiven the murderer. Yeah, she was historically the, she was basically the queen. I think her son ended up being the next sultan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she was, she she was held above all the other women in the harem. Took, took advantage of her situation. Um, But yeah. You could look at it as, you know, something to admire in Roxolana. She survived. (sighs) Yeah. You know. She yeah. and her children were royalty, so it's a it's a, a kind way, of revenge. Maybe it's a, it's a kind of revenge. Would certainly have preferred her Roxolana to have stabbed Suleiman in his sleep or something. It's a kind <laughs> of revenge, but you you have to go back to the fact like what why why do I love Robert E. Howard so much? Is because it's philosophy, right? In a certain sense, mm. like how to be. And so, what do those Janissaries represent? They represent, uh, you know, the same thing as what happened to her. Right, the women don't get put into the army; they get mm-hmm. put into sexual slavery. Right, they right. get sold off to. Uh, it's mentioned in here, right? Uh, that first girl in the village, the barkeep's daughter, whoever it is, um, right. who wants to s- stay uh, and defend the village, and he's like, "No, nah, you're getting on my horse. I can't save the whole village. They won't fit on my horse." Um, <laughs> they argue a bit, and then she's that she's was a shot. Good line, by the way, it is a good line, but it's sort of. It's like a mirror. It's going to kill you. It's going to be a lot worse. It's a psychological mirror for what happened to Sonia and her sister and their family, right? It's a psychological mirror for that because just running away, that's not going to, you know, save your family. Um, you're turning your back on your, your village, your people, etc. And then but these Janissaries. They would have died anyway. But so, the, the Janissaries yeah. are the equivalent of, uh, our Conan, our Gottfried turning um, and becoming a whipped dog, right? The whipped dog that obeys its master. And that, so th- that's why I'm, I take objection with the manifest destiny sort of thing. That is obviously, you know, he's American. He's, he knows about manifest destiny. But this is much more about a personal philosophy rather than like a uh, national drive to secure borders and stuff. I, I don't get the sense that Robert E. Howard was ultra-nationalist um, at all. Well, um, I was thinking, like, my understanding of um, uh, Manifest Destiny was it was more like, almost like the gold rush sort of thing. It's like, you can go to a place and by your own hard work um, become That's not Manifest Destiny. Luck, maybe. As much I mean, as... Manifest Destiny was more, it, it is our destiny to... As a nation. Like the world. Yeah. And right. Okay. So, so today I'm it's sure. called American yeah. exceptionalism, right? You're, you're, you're thinking more sort of the go west young man. Yes. Trap Which is, oh, there's another word for, for it as it's well. Just, it's just different terminology. But yeah, but there, I, yeah, I, I, I know, I know what you mean with it. It's just mm-hmm. a different phrasing. The, mm-hmm. the, the idea is like, um, you can, this, in this country, you can make your way, right? Mm, You're the, exactly. it's the freest country in the world. It's all merit, right? Sort of thing. Now, these are all lies. <laughs> these are all lies um, because that we have pl- plenty of evidence for that. Um, 
But in in the case, what is the alternative in this story? You could become a janissary if you're young enough to be sold into slavery, or you can be one of the other people who works for the sultan. And what are they called? Oh, yes, they also have good jobs, and but they have no balls. And they're mentioned explicitly in the story at the end there, right? What are they called? Mm. I'm forgetting. The eunuchs. The eunuchs, right? Um, this is, this is sort of like that old fashioned horrible relationship. The Romans, they conquer Greece and what do they do? They steal all the, all the, uh, scholars and make them tutors for their kids. Mm-hmm. And now those tutors have incredible influence, but they're slaves. And yet they, yes, yeah. they can work their way out of slavery, some of them, but they get to get whipped until then and they lose their name. Just like, you know, it was done in the States under slavery. They, their name becomes that of their master, even if they end up uh, freed one day. And, mm. and the relationship, like it's, it's very brutal, right? It's very, um, this is kind of why, like, it's, it, people, it'd be easy for people to want to cancel Robert E. Howard's stuff if it was a little more, uh, well known that it was public domain. It's not really well known. Like it is for love, Lovecraft stuff is it's everybody knows now, right? Everybody's doing it, but Robert E. Howard stuff is still very much under lock and key, uh, or it's perceived to be. It's not actually, but it's perceived mm. to be. And so, if it was a lot more popular, if if we were getting uh, a lot more than the one you know comic that attempted to uh, you know it's, it's doing the Conan, the I'm talking about A Blaze's the Sumerian series. Uh, which is adaptations of Robert E. Howard's Conan stuff. If there was other stuff going on, Solomon Kane and Red, this Red Sonia story and all that stuff, um, people would be like, Hey, this is popular. Can we cancel it? <laughs> and we would look yeah. at it and we would look at it and say, Well, you could. And there are certainly things to cancel, uh, you know, in, in that things to disrespect, but it's harder because his messages are not, um, Women are disempowered, should be disempowered and shut up. (laughs) He has women Mm. who are submissive and made slaves, but he also has the opposite. He's got all sorts of things going on. Um, definitely, uh, yeah, true. And, um, this just reminds me of, um, Dark Agnes, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And Sword Woman and stuff like that. Because, um, one thing I thought was interesting in terms of, like, uh, having this strong woman, like Sonya is, she's saving physically strong as well as, you know, mentally mm. strong. But, um, exactly. I thought, um, I know the Breckenridge Elkin stories are in the first person. Yep. It's from his perspective. And mm-hmm. so are the Dark Agnes stories, which I thought, until I read the huh. Breckenridge Elkins, I had only, I only knew the Dark Agnes stories were in the first person, which is unusual for, um, yeah, Robert Howard. Right? I think you're right. He just doesn't do that very much. So I thought it was very interesting to me that he chose. I think Breckenridge Elkins makes more sense to do that because it is comic, and part of the comedy is him being a sort of um, being a farm boy Doofus. or whatever who yeah. just doesn't know the world very much. So it makes sense. But um, I see about why is it like that from uh, Agnes's point of view? Why why did he write those stories in the first person? Um, and, uh, I, I mean, one of the things is I think, uh, it's, uh, it makes us very sympathetic to the stuff she's going through mm-hmm. because like you said, her, her backstory is the, 
is uh, was used for Red Sonia, right? It's mm-hmm. she's been a, a victim of uh, a potential rape, trying to be, yeah, trying to be forced into a marriage, mm-hmm. and she runs away um, and kills the so, guy who murders her or tries to yeah. rape her or mm-hmm. ma- marriage her or whatever. Yeah, um, I think uh, it's a bit. Yeah, it's surprising to me that those stories. I, I'm. It's probably just unlucky that they weren't published, but it's. Um, but it's a real shame that they weren't because I actually think that's some of. Uh, I really enjoyed those stories. And I think it's a really good series. Three more um, years, and you can record them. Okay. Only three. <laughs> well, nineteen seventy-five. Yep. Three, four years, you can record them. Well, it, it, yeah, it, it's. I I thought it was ninety-five after death. Oh, I, I have I have all sorts of ways of showing that to be incorrect. And the number one way is it had to be renewed prior to 1963, um, and that's the 95-year oh, rule. I was saying I thought that would mean that it would come sooner. Oh, no, no. it's Oh, no, no. It's 50 years after death for Canada. It's 70 years after publication uh, for the states, and then they changed the rules recently, it does, which won't matter. They're yeah. basically infinite for, for now. But basically uh, everything Howard, like almost everything Howard wrote that's been published will be public domain within the next five years it most of it, at least in canada right which is cool. wonderful most a lot of it well i mean not not necessarily the conan stuff but uh, i look at um i look at it through the vein less of the individual stories themselves and more of the characters because you know i'll, I'll make yeah, of course the characters on them and so right now i think the only thing that uh, of his sort of, if not recurring character, like Dark Agnes is still under, and yeah. Steve Costigan is still under. I think. Like I'd have to check in, on Steve in all Costigan. the others. There's at least one story with them that's public domain, right. and I feel like if I want to do a Christmas ornament of Breckenridge Elkins, then then I can just Breckenridge Elkins is public domain. Yeah. yeah, but I'd be like, well, that's the story that I'm using. <laughs> yeah, you know? of course. <laughs> yep. Oh, um, by the way, if you want to do Canada, uh, Ian Fleming's James Bond is all public domain. Woo! <laughs> right? <laughs> Just put your server in Canada. It'll work. I'll help you out. <laughs> <laughs> um, does it, I was just thinking, does anyone know whether this story, this story was 1932, I think. Uh, yeah, or 34. Um, I can't remember. I can't. 34. I couldn't find any. Thirty-four. Yep. I couldn't find anything about whether um, Howard wrote the Dark Agnes stories first or afterwards. Mm. I, mean, all uh, I, I can don't find know. Nineteen seventy-five. Um, but that's I, probably some. I feel like I feel like they were after. Although yeah, I would expect I, they I would be. Not, uh, that that's just me going off memory. Uh, I don't know mm. if that's right. Uh, I wonder what market he was trying to sell it to, right? So it, it, those those have no magic, right? Yeah, they're not weird tales. They're not weird tales, no. so it's not going to go to weird tales, which is a major market for him. It was not the only market, but it was a major. It, they're not fight stories. They're not a uh, like magic carpet magazine no. sort of stories either. They're so, not. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, very good. They're point. not spicy stories. Nope. Well, no. Well, <laughs> Vulture was written for for one of the the Eastern Tales magazines. I think. Yeah, Magic I don't Carpet. Know, yeah, I don't know what Dark Agnes was written for though. That's uh, that's the problem. It is yeah. if which is why it wasn't published. Yeah, and it might it might have been that he he's going to try and 
get into a slick. Um, not that there was that many slicks back then, but there was there was some upmarket stuff. Argosy might have published. Yeah, it. could have been. I mean, he, he I, I think he had one story in it, Adventure or Argosy. It was pretty slim pickings for him, even though that was where he he did all his his pre Weird Tales reading, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I, I oh, think there's I'm... letters to him uh, from him in the back of uh, Ask Adventure or Adventure or something like that. Mm. Um. In terms of all this sort of timeline stuff of when stuff was written, um, I also wanted to uh, sort of talk about this uh, archetype of <laughs> the like redheaded warrior women mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that seems to pop up again and again. Because um, another book that I just read recently was Jarell of Joie. Oh, okay. I yes. can answer those questions. By C.L. Moore, which was, I think, 1934 as well. Like, same year. Yeah. And she's a very similar character. She's mo- more similar to Agnes, right? She's like Jarell is French um, and semi-historical, although there's magic and no, it's not really that historical. It's pretty loose. Um, uh, and then there's also like, so we have Agnes, we have Jarell, we've got Red Sonia as well. Um, let me see. Did I write down some others? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a archetype that pops up again and again, because it's not just a warrior woman. It's, she's got to have red hair as well. <laughs> um, does anyone have any ideas? Like, Well, let me read from about? Lee Brackett's well, intro. Any red-haired women? I, I was going to – well, he, he dated for a while one of his closest friends. No, Noveline Price right Ellis, what you think? Yeah. Okay. Was she redhead? Wait, yeah, Noveline Price. She was uh, – if – if she wasn't redhead, they made her redheaded in the uh, movie, in the, the 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 Robert E. Howard biopic. E. Um, no, the uh, the the whole wide world where ah. Vincent D'Onofrio plays him. I think that's um, the. It's based on that that m- memoir. Gotcha. Mm. Yeah, and they hi- and you know and and that's brought up as a point. He's like, hey, I made a I made a lady, and she's got red hair, and he's she's like, I don't care. Um, uh, it's been a while since I've, I I haven't seen that movie in years, but I I just remember him sort of, uh, composing a boxing story in his head and like Mm. walking down the street and shadow boxing and his neighbors shaking their heads. Yeah. It's, it's what's the, the problem with that movie is it is you have to know what you're getting. Otherwise it doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, that's boring and uninteresting and like, who cares? And, but if you know, it's a, a bio, a biopic. Then actually, it's interesting. <laughs> it's about, not amazing, the, but it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I have the introduction by Lee Brackett to uh, The Sword Woman. This is from the 70s. Uh, I think 1976 she wrote it. Um, and it sort of deals with the questions you were asking, Connor. I'll just read um, uh, from the first page. It is interesting to speculate in view of the third of the Dark Agnes stories, Mistress of Death, whether Howard was making a deliberate attempt to switch his heroine into that field. If so, uh, the field uh, being a fantasy. Um, Mm. If so, he died before the story was finished. It was completely completed by Gerald W. Page, and there was no more. Then it uh, next interesting thing. It is also interesting to speculate on whether or not Dark Agnes was inspired by the Lady of Jory. Lee Brackett seems to love uh, C.L. Moore's uh, jury um, reading the rest of this in, and it says um, uh, 
Certainly Howard was aware of Jarrell. He had read Black God's Shadow and liked it and said so, and he had sent a copy of Sword Woman to C.L. Moore to read. She loved it and hoped there would be more. But at this late date, it is impossible to say which character was first conceived or whether, indeed, there was any connection between them at all. Jarrell, of course, appeared in Weird Tales before Sword Woman was written. It is, po- it is reasonable to assume that Howard and Moore both got the inspiration from their, their marital ladies... <laughs> Sorry, not marital, martial ladies from the same sources. The historical accounts of those women to whom Howard dedicates his Chronicle of Dark Agnes, from the Ballad of Mary Ambry, and quite likely from the famous saint in armor, Joan of Arc. Um, though saintliness is not, fortunately, a quality possessed by either heroine. And she goes on um, quite a bit about uh, Jarrell. But basically there she also points out that they're they're very different um if you think about how Jarrell of Jory acts she's incredibly passive compared to and, and it's not quite polite but p- passive in terms of the very first scene we see her in she's restrained right and then she goes for revenge which is very much like what we think of Red Sonia is but Red Sonia's like sort of um Every day about it, whereas Jarrell's like all in her head. <laughs> yeah, and right? then she feels bad about it. Right. Next story, and, and so it, it's it's um they are similar, mm. but the, I think the the redness is the the is it's the red flame of vengeance. The fiery. <laughs> right? I mean, Sonya's just much more of a Robert E. Howard character. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> She's just all in. <laughs> and and notice mm. also one is a princess. Or, you know, Duke, Duchess, or whatever. And the other one is uh, a girl from a town of a hundred, uh, uh, from 14 families, right? A, sw- a swashbuckler. Yeah, um, and a self, self-made, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, she, all, all the, uh, the very first scene we get her in this, in this book, she's, she's leaning over a, I think I have it in a tweet here. She, here it is. Um, uh, from, you were a cannon? Yeah. It was a woman dressed as von Kalmbach had not seen, even the dandies of France dressed. She was tall, splendidly shaped, but lithe, from under a steel cap, which nobody shows in any of the illustrations. Just so you know, uh, Chris, in future, <laughs> you want to put oh, a steel I've, cap I've on it. I've got one. I'll throw it in the chat. All right. Escaped rebellious tresses that rippled red gold uh, in the sun over her compact shoulders. Notice the lingering looks on these body parts. They're very important. Mm. High boots of Cordovan leather came to her mid-thighs, which were cased in baggy breeches. She wore a shirt of fine Turkish mesh mail tucked into her breeches. And, by the way, in the shadow shadow of the vulture adaptation, that's the only time we see Sonya dressed like that. Red Sonya, every time after... That she's chainmail bikini or a blue blouse, <laughs> right? But in the original adaptation of this story, she is dressed in a full chainmail shirt. Uh, <laughs> she she wore a shirt of fine Turkish mesh mail tucked into her breeches. Her supple waist was confined by a flowing sash of green silk into which were thrust a brace of pistols and a dagger, and from which depended a long Hungarian saber. Overall was carelessly thrown a scarlet cloak. That adverb there, carelessly, right? That's sort of something that I don't feel Robert E. Howard is at all. 
but I do feel um, he has a lot of characters yeah. acting like that, right? This surprising figure was bending over the cannon, sighting it in a manner betokening more than a passing familiarity at a group of Turks who were wheeling a carriage gun just within range. Hey, Red Sonia! shouted a man at arms, waving his pike. Give him hell, my lass! And then I said, she does. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's have a look at your picture, Chris. That's there awesome we go. Wow! Yeah, I like it. Uh, look, Fantastic. she's got the green sash. I mean, and there's something, and 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 the thing is, there, there's stuff that I really love about the Frank Thorne style. Oh, uh, so Red, good. Red Sonja as well. They're just they're you know they're they're very different. Uh, they're, they're very different characters in the sense of you know like where their their location is and things like that. And you know, uh, Conan by and large, at least the comics version, everybody is pretty darn close to nude, Conan included. So I don't uh, grimace at it. Um, within that context, you can't, but. you can't describe, you know, like it's the a comics adaptation. You can't describe, you know, that, that closely fitting thing in words on the page. You have to do it visually and it's, it's a key, right? I mean, well, in, comics, in visual medium, you just do, yeah. like the ancient Greeks did this, right? Like in all their pottery, the warriors are all naked, right? Like they weren't uh-huh. actually naked. Those guys knew what armor was and they didn't want to die but when you're drawing it. <laughs> And you're showing these heroes fighting, you know, Achilles fighting them. You're showing him, you know, with all his chest muscles out because he was a hero. And you want to show all the cool bits and comments the same way. You know? Yes. You're showing, you're showing how heroic these guys are. It's not meant to be completely realistic. Yes. It's yeah. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm very pleased about it. <laughs> I, 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 I love, I love both. I can love both. I think that uh, that's wonderful. Yeah. But you're, I'm looking at yours now. You have the, Amazing way with watercolor, sir. Well, thank you very mm. much. This is this is part of a series I did uh, about um, maybe six or seven Howard characters, uh, and I, I want to do some more. I want to do I want to do Dark Agnes. I haven't done her yet. Um, and then there's another guy, and I'm blanking on his name, but basically he's he's Falstaff. He he just it's basically uh, Howard doing Falstaff, and it's just a a cowardly uh drunken uh take advantage of his rich friends crusader who gets on the bad side of his uh commander uh and then flees across the globe from awesome. uh honor retribution and just keeps getting in increasing antics and it's great and i'm blanking on his name uh mm-hmm. but it was just a great character only appeared once so far as i know and but but there's all sorts of these just these little like one guy where you're like i can see a franchise being built around this character, but there are like 15 of those, you know I mean? Mm-hmm. It just has such a great way of, of making you immediately gravitate towards and love these, these, these figures that he introduces into these scenarios. He's super and his talented. Plots, and his, his plots are good. His writing is good, but, but you know, I mean like there, there's a reason that we, we know the names of his characters more than we can necessarily recite the plots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to see your, your Conan Fitz Joffrey, by the way, if you don't, I've got one. Oh, he's grim looking good. Cause he should have a big <laughs> Punisher skull on his, his he chest. He's, yep. He's, he's got a on his jerkin with snakes coming out of the eyes. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, there's, oh, there's, yeah, there's so many there's, you know, uh, there's some of the Lovecraftian things. There's the the the, the mystery solving partner duo. Oh, so uh, I'm I'm blanking on their names. Um, uh, 
there, yeah, Breckenridge Elkins, El Borak, which mm. I, I really like because, you know, again, it's just these little details that he puts in. Like for El Borak, it's that he's smaller than everybody else. Like there's no other defining character trait, but that's enough in an action story to make yep. you like tilt your head and think, oh, okay, I'm I'm invested now. And there's a lot of those Short stories. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I've read stuff about, oh, uh, Robert E. Howard is just inserting himself into the Conan stories, and that totally ignores how <laughs> different all of his characters are. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he wouldn't he, he, want he, to be... He's saying he's insane if he's Solomon Kane, right? <laughs> he's like right. a religious whack job. And then and the other guy doesn't... Self-insertion in Solomon Kane, yeah. um, you know. No, uh, that's that's know, not it. He's he's you, not in. You've ins- got some super heroic characters in Conan, but you also have a lot of characters who are just, uh, you know, fairy tale versions of the fool stumbling their way through life, and you know, like um, the brave little tailor mm. fairy tale gets himself into trouble and has to, through lying and bragging, and has to, you know, figure his way out of it. Jack and the Beanstalk, he's, you know, this idiot trades away his farm for <laughs> fake magic beans, but mm-hmm. they turn out to be real, and then he has to deal with a giant and stuff. So, I mean, um, you've got these archetypes of, of uh, uh, you know, some fairy tales are the prince has to go on a quest and climb a glass mountain or whatever, but you also have the fools, which are, you know, the peasants telling the fairy tales. Mm-hmm. They get to win sometimes, too. So I just really enjoy, you know, taking that into Howard. You know, he he has so many ideas about different kinds of people and different ways that people can win. And I love that. Yeah. And notice, again, it's always people at the bottom. It's not like... Yes. You're an elite, your dad was an elite, your mom was an elite, and you get to be elite, and then you crush some villains, a.k.a. the poors. No, it's some poor <laughs> making good, right? And that's yeah. that's an, it's, I think it's a function in part of the fact that, you know, of who he was and where he was, but I think it's also, who's the target audience for these these pulp magazines? It ain't the elites. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the yeah. guy on the, on the bus headed to work. Um, you know, radio's coming in, sure, uh, but movies, you know, you can't can't go to them every night. No, who can afford that? But you get a whole lot of fun out of reading a, a few stories about some guy went off to Afghanistan and made friends with a with a Af- Afghani, and now they're going looking for a, a lost city that might have a giant jewel in it. That's awesome! I'm like, dude, I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I, I, I want, I want to know, um, Connor, uh, what are we doing next? Uh, I, I keep lobbying for Skullface, uh, but it's pretty long. Well, you also, um, posted, uh, is it the Graveyard Rats or Rats at the Graveyard? Yeah, Graveyard Rats Which by Henry a- Cutner. No, no, it's, um, a Robert E. Howard. Right? Oh, yes. Maybe he wasn't. Yes. And it- it's a detective story. Aha, uh-huh, yes. I, I know the one. It's pretty short, I think. Yeah, but there's also the Swords of Shahrazad, I think. Swords of Shahrazad or whatever it is, yeah. Shahrazad? That's That's a different story. But that one's there. I'm sure there's more historical stuff. Oh, there's tons. Um, Yeah. um, So, I mean, yeah. Uh, Whatever's there, if there's still stuff by Howard that hasn't been done. uh, So much. We'll be getting around to it. Yeah, I mean, Um, Al Murek is... is, uh, There's some... 
evidence maybe that he didn't write the last bit of it. But um, it's it's public domain too. Almost everything is. There's very little that isn't. Like right. we, uh, you know, there's some the stuff that got lost in a trunk for a few days. Yeah, there's some stuff that came out in the set late seventies, like seventy seven. So you wait six more years and we're good. Um, okay. There's some stuff that's from the eighties. Okay, we're not going to get that. But these, are the, those are the the dregs in a certain sense. A lot of it's unfinished, right? Mm. And in which case you wouldn't wouldn't really want to do anything with it. But the stuff that is complete that, you know, came out in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s, there's stuff coming out. One of the Conan, that Amra story came out in the 60s, I think it was. And that's a Conan story that's, they're all, I think all the Conan stories are public domain now. And it's, it's mm. mostly the case for most, it. most everything, right? Now, do you, now, and, and, and you may, uh, know what, what the deal is with this, Jesse. Um, a while back, I think there, you know, I mean, there, there's always stuff going on with Sherlock Holmes, and I know yeah. what the, the situation was with the Klinger case. Yeah. But um, with the, there was a case about uh, Tarzan and trademark versus copyright, yeah. and I wasn't sure what the the outcome of that was as it relates to public domain, and if you know if, what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. So basically, what you can't do is what uh, A Blaze is a company uh, that's putting out comics. Uh, that are French, a French, French company. I don't know if they're a French company, but they're putting out English version of French comics that are out, been out in France for a while. Um, but the distribution in the States is through Diamond, right? And mm-hmm. Diamond got a cease and desist letter from the people, and they had to do some negotiations, a.k.a. basically... You know, we're still in charge of the Conan estate, and you cannot use the name Conan on the front of your comics. So it says very boldly on the front, The Sumerian, and then the name of the story. So as long as you, like, (laughs) if you, if you wanted to do a James Bond thing, you can't. But you can do an adaptation. You just can't call it James Bond on the, on the Mm. front. You just call it, you know, The Spy Who Loved Me by Ian Fleming, adapted by, right? So you're fine, and you can use James Bond in it. You just can't change the name at all gotcha and you can and you can futz around with it too you can take an, a story and adapt it the way you want as long as it's you know adapted from that story and, and even the those the, there was a case of saying oh there's some features about sherlock holmes that don't come until these six later stories that are still copyrighted that's yeah. fucking bullshit and that case is not Solid. So as long as you you know you have a well, and they and they bit of a back Conan Doyle estate, yeah. which of course has nothing to do with the heirs of Conan Doyle, uh, lost that case. So <laughs> oh. now that that's basically been opened yes. up that you can't use that argument. Yes, it's a shitty argument, and it it's gone. So uh, the main thing you need to be is basically know what you're talking about and have a backbone, and just say, hey, you say I'm not allowed to have this on my website because it's copyrighted. Um, why don't you come on my podcast and talk about it? And guess what they do? They never contact you again. Because if you put up mm. any kind of spine, uh, the HPLHS uh, mentioned this in a recent podcast, you know, Lovecraft stuff is all basically public domain. There's very little that isn't, and it's very dribby. Like, you know, almost nothing. Even stuff from the 60s is all public domain. Because he didn't re- copyright and renew anything, and nobody else did. Now... August Derelith claims everything was his. But as mm. time goes on and people have access and they realize how it goes on, people start saying, no, that's not true. 
Um, but there's still a company out there that will license it to you if you want. They don't have any more right to Lovecraft stuff than you do. But if you want to pay them, go ahead. <laughs> and then, put a little registered trademark. Uh, yeah, yeah, official. Oh, boy. Um, you could put that on there without it as well and get as a much of a difference, right? So <laughs> there, there are there are some edge cases, but they're not. They don't generally apply to Howard stuff. They apply to people out of the UK, or they apply to some uh, some magazines that claim that they have co- they they had a contract that says they have exclusive copyright over everything. So in the case of like the Shadow, if you're writing under a house name and that that you you lost all rights to it when you wrote it as a work for hire, if that contract paperwork exists. Then maybe you don't. It's not public domain, but I don't really care about the shadow or the house name stuff, so I haven't really looked into that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're safe. Ask me; I'll help, I'll help you out. <laughs> Thank you very As much. As a non-lawyer who spent a lot of time working on this, I will happily charge you my regular fee, which is <laughs> send me a nice drawing <laughs> that you did for somebody. Yeah, Jesse is not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but I, I, I have lots of friends who, law- who are lawyers. And you useful don't want friends to have. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's it's good to know people and have contacts with uh, people who are really good at what they do. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you Thanks. so much for having us on. I appreciate it. I don't know how long that was. I don't know if we're done either. I just assumed. Um, the only I mean, thing there's more. Me, <laughs> oh, go for it. Yeah, there's always more. Go for it. Let me. The only thing that I wanted to, the only other thing that I had on my list was the Red Agnes movie, which I did watch. Oh, is it you, like you a, the Red Sonya movie or? Oh, sorry, Red Sonya. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was, I was like, like, there's a Red, Red Agnes movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, no, that's no. a movie. Oh, I, I'd love to. Talk I, about I wish Red there was a, an Agnes movie. <laughs> Let's That'd do it. Cool. Um, but uh, the Red Sonya one, which I watched, uh, which I was that's a fake uh, Conan in it. Sorry, it has a fake Conan in it. Uh, sorry, what was that, Jesse? It, it has, has fake Conan. It has uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger playing not Conan. Yeah, well, I thought it was Conan in disguise at first because <laughs> they, they says he's he's the it's, king of. Um, it's Conan in disguise for copyright. Reasons. Yes. Oh, okay. I see. Um, yeah, but he's totally Conan. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I didn't realize he was in it. Um, it it uh, I've got it. One thing I'll say is. Um, it's not good. Nope. <laughs> um, like it reminds me of the other Conan movie with Arnie in it. Um, Destroyer. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I don't know. I don't know what it's called. Yeah, I it's the second one. Conan. Or, Conan the Barbarian's but, the good one. Yeah, it's the one with the wheel but, of pain. But, um, yes. Yeah. Um, well, and this is this one was directed by the same guy you did Destroyer, right? Yeah, I think you're right, Richard Fleischer. Fleischer both of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, and um, Sandal Bergman's in it, and uh, it's it's and also Roy Thomas wrote both of them, right? Well, uh, they, they actually, all Sandra Bergman the the lead, right? And she turned it down, so I want to play the villain. Yeah, yeah, mm. and and also, um, actually, uh, uh, George McDonald Fraser did the script uh, for this one. Who, if y'all have read the the Flashman papers, he did that, and then he also oh, yeah. did the the scripts for the. The Richard Lester Three Musketeers movies in the seventies. I want to do a Flashman book, but I I I know um, Alex is into it, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, but I, I don't know. I've never read one, so I don't know where to start with it. But yeah, that'd be cool. I, I did an experiment with Red Sonja earlier this year, which I, 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 I popped a DVD into my computer. And on my, my VLC player, I, just, I turned down the saturation all the way and up to the contrast and brightness a little bit to see mm-hmm. what it was like in black and white. Mm-hmm. And Red Sonja in black and white is a much better movie because <laughs> despite the fact that it was made in 1985, there's nothing that was done in it that couldn't have been done in 1945. Ah, like, I see what you're saying. Special effects are very sort of cheap practical, practical on the set mm. effects the sword fights are kind of you know now if you mute the thing <laughs> and keep the keep the ennio morricone uh music mute the thing and then add subtitles you could fix that movie quite a bit it's yeah i mean the thing is like in black and white i was like oh there, there's a lot of charm to it i actually really like the the little ernie reyes jr character uh prince tarn and his oh. his uh oh. His his loyal goon, like I I'm I, I know there's I would love to see like them uh, find stuff in comics because I feel like you could do some real fun you know I mean like some like comedy adventure stuff mm-hmm. with them and I'd love to have seen I think they I think characters. I think there's some lifting from com- from the comics I don't remember that it that well um, mm-hmm. but you know the the destroyer um, was almost completely. I mean, one of the Zula, remember from the Destroyer played by Grace Jones? Mm-hmm. Zula is a dude in the Conan comics and they, they swap genders on that. And I thought that was interesting because it's another female who's not, she's um, so great in that movie. She is, she is, she's great in every movie, really. I mean, <laughs> uh, what's the, she's, she's in the, my favorite James Bond kill. movie. Yeah, View to a Kill. She's yeah. like masterpiece. And so is, uh, Christopher Walken, right? It's just wonderful. <laughs> It's amazing. It's 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 got the old tropes in it that you forgot about. Um, but yeah, I, but I I still think Connie, we gotta get into Skullface. I'm I'm so yeah. big into Yellow Peril, and this is I his just, version of Fu Manchu. The other week, I saw, and you had some pics I'd never seen before. There's some good stuff. He he's okay. He you gotta you gotta read it and see if it's up because I've not read it. But based on all the things I've seen, it looks like it's gonna be amazing because it's him doing Fu Manchu and uh, that with that Shang Chi movie coming out. That's some Fu Manchu background. Things on Twitter if you want to read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I might even have a paperback of it. I've got a PDF you can print up. But um, but uh, um, y'all hear that? That sounds good. Yeah, there's a, another news announcement for yet another Conan show or whatever. Um, but I don't believe it. But they're now talking about a Red Sonja TV show. We'll see. Um, all I can tell you is uh, it probably will suck <laughs> based on the fact that Chainmail McKinney will not translate to film. Um, I mean, they didn't. No, I mean, it's it's great and everything in comics. It's It's her trademark. But. Uh, whatever they do, t- I I just expect it to be terrible. Low expectations. I'm lowering the expectations now to minus eleven. She um she doesn't wear one in the film. No, she has a more maybe realistic, <laughs> although still unrealistic. It, it's but. sort of like a a vaguely like uh, peplum armored dealy. Yeah, it's um it's it's not too bad. I mean, one thing I did really like about the Red Sonja movie, well, mm-hmm. actually the first thing. Is a she has a rock and mullet. Um, <laughs> You're right, she does. <laughs> um, but also, uh, I thought um, 
despite the like maybe wooden acting and so, a little bit of a nonsensical story, um, uh, the sets and the costumes I thought were really fantastic. I, I, I remember Sandal Bergman being good as the villain too, but it's I haven't seen it for thirty years. I would say, but um, it, it was it was cool to see. Yeah. It was cool to see. So you got it once in your life. That's probably enough. <laughs> yeah. Once is enough. Yeah. It was, it um, was a very big, dis- uh, you know, it, it, there are, there are scenes, like there's a scene in the Conan the Destroyer movie that's good. There is a scene, mm. right? Where, uh, I don't know, he's on horseback and he has to fight somebody in a little valley. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And it's right near the beginning. Um, but, Honestly, it's just like, I don't care about this whining princess. I like Wilt Chamberlain. I like, uh, <laughs> Grace Jones. Uh, but the, the horn thing, the pulling the guy's uh, horn off. This, what was her name? The Superman villain plays the evil queen in that. She was oh, Zod's right yeah. in Superman 2. Yeah. Ursa in Superman 2. Honestly. She plays the evil queen in Destroyer, and I can't remember. I think you, it's. You the, mentioned the prince. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go for it. You you mentioned the princess and destroyer, and I I texted my friend. uh, I watched. I had never seen Destroyer before, maybe last year, and I texted him. I was like, "Man, the princess looks a lot like Olivia Diabo." And he, oh, it is. Yeah. He get yeah. He he was like, "Are you are you messing with me?" And I was like, "No." I was like, "Oh, okay." I just it it didn't feel like the timelines aligned to. I think she's she's like like sixteen. Yeah, she's super young in that movie. That's probably what it is. She was sixteen and sleeping with the producer at the time. It was not. uh, It was not pretty. It's (laughs) not a good. Not a good. But I love Dan. But in in Sonya, like uh, Arnold's costumes are great. Like he's actually okay. It's 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 poorly written. It's poorly written. But he's he's very charismatic on screen, and their dynamic isn't horrible. But yeah, yeah that, it's, not, it's, it's a mess. That movie's a mess, unfortunately. I, I think um, it may be. So I actually didn't know that there were two, uh, Arnie Conan movies. I thought there was just one. All no, I there's seen two. Is the first one. Um, but the thing with that one, and I think the same thing with the Red Sonja, is it feels like it's almost like um, they're trying to do little fifteen-minute stories in different settings in different locations. Um, so like in the red Sonia, there's like one, there's a little scene where she has to get through, uh, a toll road basically. And there's a fellow who like sits at the, yeah. And, um, and then she's got to fight him and it's kind of like, it doesn't fit into the larger story in any way or contribute to anything. Just a set piece to waste time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the same thing, like there's other stuff. Um, that's called a Harry Potter movie. That's all the Harry so, Potter movies are like that. They're scene based. So you have a scene and mm-hmm. they have to solve this problem. You have a scene. Now, the, the legit difference in the first Conan movie is that there is an overall arc, right? So yeah, he, he it's, it's funny because people say it's none of the, it's none of the Conan stories and they should just adapt one of them. Actually, it's all of them. Right there's the witch yeah. shall be born yeah. in there, and it's the tower yeah. of the elephant, and it's it's got the the Felsa Doom stuff is the overarching story, and he goes to Kaite in that one, right? <laughs> it's basically mm-hmm. it's everything, right? And so uh, there's even there's stuff that isn't even Howard like uh, at the beginning where he's being chased by oh I guess it's not the beginning after he's a slave he's chased by wolves that's a that's another Roy Thomas adaptation of another uh, writer's 
Like it, the most it's famous line in that movie is from Genghis Khan. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which right. is it, it? It perfectly fits. And, and the thing is, is it's actually not Robert E. Howard's Conan philosophy there exactly, but it gives you the taste, and that's yeah. what I like. And uh, it has that thing at the end where you know uh, that is another story. I'm I'm sold. Uh, it's like the Buckaroo Banzai ending, right? <laughs> You know, talking about the movies made me made me think of something else that I, I noticed when when uh, listening to to Connor's narration of this one. Um, which there's was a thing excellent, by the way. which was excellent. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Um, which was uh, Howard does something in this that is uh, it's not standard fare necessarily, but you find it a lot in the better done action movies structurally, which is that you don't. And you don't necessarily see it in like Marvel movies and stuff like and a lot of these bigger budget things kind of keep building and then and then end. But there's, there's a, a giant there's train a, a chase at the end. Yeah, there's a school of thought in in, you know, narrative thing that you want your big uh, like blow everybody away set piece action scene to be around the middle to second third of the movie. And then your climax, uh, your action climax should actually be something that more reflects the, the immediate character thing and is much smaller. So it's like, mm. it's not die hard on the roof. It's die hard facing off against Alan Rickman with a gun taped to his back, or it's not, you know, uh, the bride fighting the tons of people in the club. It's the bride, you know, staring off against Bill in the kitchen. It's, it, it, it pulls away from this big epic thing and makes a very immediate and small struggle. And that's what, what Howard does with the, you know, the siege and all the big siege stuff mm -hmm. happening. And then the, the action climax or, or the, 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 the climax of the story is when Sonya rescues him from two dudes and just sort of wrestles him in a small room. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because that, that feels counter to what, I think your your instincts would be narratively, which is to keep establishing larger and larger stakes, uh, rather than to pull back and, and create this you know tense, uh, more intimate physical moment. And I I think it's really interesting that Howard went in that route on this. Yep. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, he he's a master of that. A little bit too, Go for which it. Um, I I alluded to it before with the suddenness of the ending. Um. Um. So. The uh, uh, Oglu, who Mikhail Oglu, who has been pursuing Gottfried through most of this story, uh, his death is off screen, which is mm -hmm. really <laughs> surprising um, for you know someone who is sort of the title character, Shadow of the Vulture. Yep. Although that's also obviously a metaphor just for war mm -hmm. and destruction. But but yeah, you he's been pursuing throughout this the story, um, but he dies off screen to you know the thunder thunder of guns, which you assume is him dying, um, and but that's fitting because the real enemy who sent Oglu after Gottfried was um, well was the vizier uh, who was the proxy for Suleiman, mm -hmm. so. At the end, you do have Suleiman seeing, you know, your death by proxy, your agent's death uh, in the severed head of his agent. So I just 
that yeah, that's a choice that a, not a lot of people would make. But you I have to it, have confidence in your readership. Yeah, yeah. Whereas most I, people don't. They they think I'm smarter than my audience. Right. I have to tell them everything. To go through beat by beat. Yep. Here he is dying, screaming, maybe giving a dying speech. No, <laughs> he dies mm. off screen and is disposed of. <laughs> What's awesome yeah. though is that you still get a really satisfying mm-hmm. sort of climax to that story yes. because you get the shock of the head um, as well. So you still get some gruesome, uh, you know, excitement. Um, and you feel smart uh, in 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 comprehending what's going on mm-hmm. right well, he, he doesn't take the easy m- most predictable ending to the story mm-hmm. um in in that of that of uh Mikhail endings are so. really important i i was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about um uh another movie i can't remember the na- name of it but it doesn't matter they were talking about the screenplay for the uh, all quiet on the western front mm-hmm. right and the uh they they couldn't figure out the ending because as you say you know this this it's the marvel method uh for marvel movies right you have you know inciting incident pre-credits or whatever and then uh, some calm and some comedy and then a sequence where things are ramping up and then there's the giant fight club thing at the end um and then the train sequence thing right I mean, it sort of ramps up to bigger and bigger things, then everybody comes together, and that's sort of how the whole Marvel Universe thing works, too, right? You have a small-scale Iron Man, and then you have a uh, Captain America, and you throw in some other ones, and then eventually everything comes together, and that final thing that's so big that it can't even be contained by one movie, you know? <laughs> right. And it, and it feels like it's, uh, well, I'm glad it's over with, kind of, because <laughs> it was so big. But All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, somebody suggested... And they did it. Um, it ends with the front being quiet and a butterfly. Now, why is that important? Because it's symbolic. Butterfly is a traditional symbol of people's spirits flying to heaven. It's like, oh yeah, of course. And you, it's the silence too, right? It's, it's life. It's, it's everything. And so going back to the title. The Shadow of the Vulture, a.k.a. He's a Ghost. (laughs) 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 He's smart, this Robert E. Howard guy. He knows what he's doing. Mm. He does. And it's very important to get, you know, the title is important. And that's what they did in All Quiet on the Western Front. Right? Uh, How noisy are those butterfly wings? The audience is listening. There's not much Mm. noise. And then the credits roll. Oh, uh, the movie I remembered, it's, uh, the podcast is really good. It's called The Lack. Uh, the guy, I really, I hate it when there's, it's like, I can't hate Connor quite yet. Um, oh, um because, because we're, <laughs> we're kind of friends, but I don't know this guy. His name is Benjamin Studebaker, and I, I kind of hate him because he's really smart and, and he's not my friend, right? <laughs> I just know him from the internet. But he has this podcast called The Lack and many other podcasts, it seems. And um, they talked about uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. I'm sure some of people here have seen that movie. You know, it's from 62, yeah. Western film. And I haven't seen it forever, but I remembered Lee Marvin was in it. And then there's Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne. And they talked about that 
that movie as being um, either about two ways of being a man or possibly three ways of being a man. And the two ways are the John Wayne way and the Jimmy Stewart way. And then there's the one that nobody can accept, which is the Liberty Val- Valance one. And that's a movie that doesn't tell you who shot Liberty Valance. That's a movie that has confidence in its audience. And that's why it's a good movie. Right? It's, it's, mm. it does, I mean, it's right in the title. The man who shot Liberty Valance. Which one was it? Was it the Jimmy Stewart or was it the John, uh, and they're different. Can you think of two different Hollywood actors who are, you know, as big as they are? Jimmy Stewart or John Wayne? I can't think of two any. And of course, Lee Marvin, he's a force of nature himself. And they're three different mm. kind of men and three, it's three different kinds. Yeah, we're done, I think. Mm. Whoever, oh, that's Alex. You're done? Yeah, I think I'm. I need to head out. All right, I'll allow it. <laughs> okay. I can't stop you. I need you. to head off too. So. Thank you. Everybody's um, done. Talking with everybody. It has been. Um, yeah. Thank you all so very much for letting me be join you on this. I really uh, happy to have you in the, in the chat. And uh, well, I'll see you on the Twitter. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet Connor about what he's gonna record for us next. <laughs> uh, and I, I also oh, sure. yeah, go for it. Okay. By the way, if anyone's interested. Just recorded a John Buchan weird tale Ooh. from like 1901. Which one? Called Watch It by the Threshold. Oh, and it's great. Awesome. Awesome. Nice. So if you're interested, let's I'll do send it. you an MP3 of it. Um, sure. Let's do it. Finished editing it. Do it as a show. Cool. We'll do it as a yeah, show. Sure. We'll plan and we'll put it together on the schedule. Um, and uh, don't forget to tell them about your uh, your Shea story. Oh, yes. Also, Michael Shea? I also have a Michael Shea story. Not a weird tale, but it's. Um, but uh, it's still pretty awesome. It's a horror story, right? Uh, it's called um, uh, Last Philip, Tan- with Philip, Philip with Regular. That's it. And yeah. then you had something else too, didn't you? Uh, oh yeah, a lot. It's on something on YouTube. I can't I, remember. I, I oh, okay, yeah. Time, I'm so I'm so grateful to you for having recorded that to where I can can bring it into the the car, Shadow of the Vulture, because it's one of my favorites. I reread it pretty much every year. And I've always been really sad that it's not amongst the stuff that uh, I can listen to. And so, so thank you for, for doing that. No problem at all. Um, I will, I'm trying to figure out how to set up the MP3s to be downloadable. Um, that's not through Dropbox. So I can, I can um, post them for you if you want to just have, sure. have the link somewhere on your website. I can put the files online. Absolutely. Um, yep. Yeah. No worries. Thanks very much, Chris. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Hopefully, yeah. many more. I'm sure. I'm sure there's something I need to talk to you about, Connor. So if you can't, if you can't stay to talk about whatever that thing is that I can't remember at this very moment, um, <laughs> DM me uh, when you're available. Okay. Okay. Uh, I got about three minutes. <laughs> no, no, that's not enough time. Um, I, I do want to sell you on the story called "The Mystery of Silmer that Lovecraft says is my idea of a weird tale. Um, but I ooh, want you to read I it. Saw- Yep. Because I, um, I saw that it's one not, as well and I was like, ooh, that looks like It's very it's super atmospheric and it's good, but um it's it's also a little rough especially in places, but it's it's definitely got needs to be it's never been republished. That's crazy. Nineteen twenty nine story or twenty seven story. But there's there's so much out there now that you could do. So um <laughs> whenever you find time. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. Absolutely. I've got a long list, but 
I will be getting to all of them eventually. Uh, and um, give me give me the files you want. I'll upload them and give you a link that will work, and then you can put it on uh, your website or wherever you like. Cool. I don't know Absolutely. what I don't know where I would put them on my website because unless it's just an a post. Um, well, I was thinking of there's uh, this website called Bandcamp, right? Which yeah. will, you can mm-hmm. host stuff like music or whatever. But you can but I can put them up there, and then people can uh, just download them. And it, that feels a little bit better because um, uh, you can you do have like more a control over it that way. You do, and also slight financial incentive because mm-hmm. people can give you donate money right. if they want, or they can just download them for free. So, um, uh, so that would be cool if I managed to get <laughs> some money. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, I gotta head off. All right, um, thank you very much. But yep, awesome I'll- fun. Yeah, it was fun. Okay. Thanks yep. so Talk much. To you guys later. Bye bye, everybody. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF Audio. And uh, I haven't listened to them since, but I remember them, and that's uh, that's uh, that's how I found out about you and your your comics, which I well, um, I got a chance to hear them. Thank you. Yeah. I I have not listened to them either. I I I'm hesitant to. Ever oh, they're wonderful. Them. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> I haven't revisited them since they came out, yeah. but but uh, I remember them well. That was um that was before I. I want to say it was before his babies, but I can't say that for sure because it's time is no no longer linear, as you mentioned. Uh, Who else we got here? Trish, are you in? Connor, no Trish yet. Ah, there you are. Good morning. Good morning. Oh no, good afternoon, (laughs) and good evening. It's uh, four in the afternoon, and I think it's seven for Chris. Okay. How's it uh, going, Chris? Six, six for me. I'm doing great. Oh, okay. uh, is this, who, who am I speaking with at the moment? Uh, I'm. This is Connor. Hey, Connor. Um, how's it going? Um, yeah. He he narrated so, the audiobook I, version. I was going to say, and you, I recognized your voice. Ah, <laughs> uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you yeah, very I'm, much for for doing that. That was there. There are uh, a lot of a lot of Howard stories uh, that have audiobooks, and I've always been real sore that that one didn't. So I'm I'm over the moon to have a copy of it. Yeah, we're going to put yeah, that yeah. in the podcast feed. It's already up on YouTube. Um, I do want to mention there's two glitches, tiny little glitch noises in the uh, file. I will send you one. I didn't catch the other, but it's after that. Um, I'd have okay. to scour the waveform, uh, the time index I'm on actually, that. Yeah, I think it, I think what it is. I know. I think I know what they are. It's um, the updated one. Mm-hmm. The updated file might not have them. It's when I normalized the audio. Ah. There was um, some tiny little clips that had no audio at all in them. And what happened was, because it, when it's normalizing, right, it'll bring whatever audio is in there up to yeah. the um, the maximum volume. <laughs> and I had so a similar it took, problem like, yesterday. Barely anything. I yeah, whispered. Okay. So, I whispered um, something, and it it was I did it on purpose, but it it minimized it when I right, levelated it. And I had to yep. go back to the original file and then maximize it, and then it still doesn't sound great. But basically, you can't whisper if you're 
if you're not recording perfectly in the first place. It's a long mm. story short. Um, um, I'm having trouble getting cool. Trish. Okay. It looks like we have uh, um, Alex from Pulp Covers, but he is yep. muted. Oh, there you are. Can you hear me now? Yep. Right, I've been dancing back and forth with my headphones and trying to get everything straight down here. Cool. Um, uh, I don't know if you guys would know each other from Twitter. Uh, Alex, uh, a.k.a. Pulp Covers, um, and Chris Schweitzer, who's a... Car- I want to say cartoonist, but that's not the right word for it. No, uh, that's, that's the right word. Is it? Well, yeah. I mean, you're all sorts of stuff now. And you're... you're <laughs> You're well, like that's, that's that's the day job, I guess, is the writing and drawing the the comics. Yeah, well, I mean, it's hard. I was just at the comic book store yesterday, and I was I, this thought occurred to me as I'm buying some comics that the um, <laughs> the people drawing and making the comics probably make less money than the people selling the comics at the comic book store, and they don't make a lot of money. <laughs> but but I think things are changing with like you, you do a lot of Patreon or related sort of materials, right? And that's got to make a massive difference, I would guess. Yeah, it's it's probably a, about a third of my my income comes from the the Patreon stuff. So that's been a really uh, helpful bump. Um, it's, uh, it's, to, it's to a new good there. way. I'm really grateful for it. It's a new good way that was not available before the web. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, oh, you could go to a convention and sell some stuff, I guess. But yeah, and I do. I do pretty few of those. I I do maybe five a year, just because schedule doesn't really permit doing mm-hmm. more than that. My my buddy Kyle, who lives about an hour north of me, and who who we frequently collaborate on stuff. Um, you know, sometimes he'll do thirty plus a year, and I can't even wrap my head around it. Um, cool. uh, but he he writes a lot, and he can write on the road, and I can't really work on the road. I will. Um, I w- I should uh, probably get you back and just do a, a separate show talking about comics and stuff. <laughs> if you don't want to, if if you don't mind, just because oh, no, I don't I know can. how much time everybody else has, and um, I do want to talk to you. It's just um, uh, it just happened to be that I thought, oh, he's a he's a fan of this as well, of course. So uh, we're talking about it. Might as well. It, I I keep trying to get Mark Finn back, but uh, his wife died. I think. Uh, I don't know. Was it late last year, or early this year? And uh, he's been scarce since then. He, she was sick for a long time as well. So, whatever. Um, <laughs> we got a crew. Tricia here with us. I am here. Cool. Sorry, I'm a little late. No, no worries. Um, just getting the, getting acquainted stuff on. We've got uh, Chris Schweitzer and uh, Alex of a mysterious no last name because of his day job. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Chris. And we got Connor, of course, who narrated for us again. How's it going? It's good. I don't suppose all you uh, saw my recent tweets today, because I've been basically tweeting up a storm while listening to Connor's uh, narration. I've been Um, super busy today. I just got back uh, from dinner with friends, so I haven't looked at Twitter since, like, it's nothing really essential. It's just pictures uh, found from various sources and, uh, you know, photographs of books I've got that have copies of this story. But the most exciting thing to me was uh, looking up um, a Rogatino. <laughs> and it's a small town. Very, It's like a hamlet outside of St. Petersburg. 
Um, and mm-hmm. you can look it up on Google Maps and like, hey, this is Red Sonia's house. That's really cool. That's <laughs> right? <laughs> I mm. mean, it's fun to look up, you know, Philip K. Dick's house and, you know, various people's houses. But um, it it is, it, may, maybe we'll mention this in the podcast, but probably not. It's just um, something you can do that, you know, if you just have to think, you sort of apply everyday life skills to stories now. It's amazing what we can do. Mm-hmm. So I've got some. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got some interesting historical stuff. Cool to Looking talk forward about. To so if we want to get into yeah uh, any any of that, that might be interesting. Anybody um, anybody got a hard time out, Trish? Are you gaming or anything later? No, I'm good. We cool. can go. <laughs> cool. And Goner, it's morning uh, for you, right? Sooner or later, you know, after several hours, the <laughs> stamina may start to flag a little bit. Yes, I no, I, I don't expect more than three hours. I expect way less than three hours, but <laughs> maybe more than two. We'll see. Um, two hours is probably my rough limit, but I'll just, you know, I'll let you know if I'm all right. Sounds good. Point, but yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'll have to, I'll have to bow out after two. I think we'll probably get in under two. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, Alex, you good? Yeah, I'm good. Cool. I assume barbecue season has started uh, for you. I haven't seen any barbecue pictures, but I've been busy outside working. So we're getting close. I'm having a new patio put in right now, so my grill's kind of shoved off to the side. It's a little okay. Unfortunate. Yeah, my my patio is completely inaccessible uh, because they're doing something. I don't have a barbecue on there anyway, so we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I want to see some pics when you get some going. All right, here we go. Um, Chris, the way this works is just say your name, okay? Okay. <laughs> what what so, are we doing here? Well, let's see. Jesse, um, it's maybe, is it Trish? I'm not sure. Let's, let's have a look. Let's have a look. Who do we got? We got Connor. Um, he's been on a bunch of shows. We got Trish. She's been on a bunch of shows. Alex has been on a bunch of shows. How about we go, uh, Jesse, Trish, uh, Connor, Alex, uh, oh, wait, did I say Chris in there? Jess, nope. uh, no, Jesse, Trish, Connor, Alex, Chris. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. okay so here we go. I've got my recording going. If you want to record as well, Trish, that'd be great because Paul's not available. Back up. Let's go on. Oh, cool. Recording. Well, so. Excellent. Thank you. Here we go.